what's your observations of Bannerman? Uh, his, his, what, what do you observe about his style of writing? I'm not getting into the content right now. Because I, I think it's helpful. We just had a little conversation. Reeves, what's your thought? What were you thinking when you read What What was your reaction that you told me a minute ago? Well, that I sort of read a point and get it, and then start reading more and realize he's sort of continuing to make that same point. Yeah. And then yeah. so I start going and just skimming until I get to the next point. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, and then get that point. So anyway, we just talked about his, yeah. uh, we talk, called it uh, meditating yeah. on the same Meditative spiraling. When I get a critique, I don't ever get critiques in my sermons. It just never happens. But every once in a while I do that. Um, but that's one of the major critiques, and I just go, I know, I know. But I'm going to do it. What's he doing? Meditative spiraling. Digging. See, you think about how, we were just talking about how our culture, I mean, I, I, I have no doubt that there is a, we're coming to a point, hopefully, the idealism of, of the millennials or the or what's next and et cetera will do it. Because I do. I have a lot of hope. I think there's a lot of pushback to modernity starting to happen finally in the next generation. And modernity, if you're a boomer, you're a modern. And um, there's a lot of junk in modernity. And, um, and we just live it without even knowing it. That's why we need to be open-minded to the next generation. But, but one of the pushbacks I think you're going to see, and tell me about the book that you were reading, you heard about. What was your point? Basically, how we are continually being interrupted all the time, and that time is collapsing. Time is collapsing. Yeah. Um, but in the past, you used to go on a trip, come back, you might find out that grandma passed away. Whereas now, you know, you just find out your friend's status immediately while you're just having breakfast. And so your trip was not interrupted. Now, you kind of, oh, God, I didn't get that. But I'm kind of down deep here admitting, I'm kind of glad I didn't because I got to finish my date or I got to finish this event or whatever. We live in a world with, I love that concept. Is that the title of the book, uh, Time Collapse or something like that? I think it's uh, It's a professor that's, that's uh, just written a book and shared it with her. The, uh, I, it's hard for us to imagine, I think, what it means to meditate. Um, meditation means that you, you, you know, you... you you learn something, and then you start spiraling down. You start digging. You, you, you think about it. You, you look at it from this angle. Then you look at it from that angle. Then you look at it from that angle. We're looking for these little bullet points. We're looking for these little, just give me the facts. Give me the facts. Don't give me the meaning. You know. And so what you see, I mean, imagine, these are people that you, some, a guy like Bannerman, he's writing a book, and then he's getting on a horse, and he's going to visit his parishioners, and he's sitting on a horse. Quietly sitting on a horse, thinking and thinking and thinking. You know, Edwards takes a takes a, a an hour to two uh, horse ride. This prolific Edward, he takes a horse ride every single day of his life. You know, and just imagine the world where you know that's not so rushed. And um, it's something you know. I think I'm trying to push back on, and 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 uh, you just need some time. So that's what you see Bannerman doing, and you'll see it in all these guys that they're. They're just, they're just, they're not in a hurry. <laughs> and so they're not writing in a hurry and they're not expecting the reader. They don't even conceive of a reader that needs to get on to something else. And because of that, they dig deep. And they make you think deep. And they make you go a little looking at it from different angles. You can, you can be frustrated with that, but I suspect that's more a, a product of your modernity than it is a product of inherent right or wrong, I guess I could say. But yeah, so I'm sure Bannerman was difficult. <clears throat> 
Um, but at the same time, um, I hope you find him to be very profound. I've asked Craig to, to lead uh, our small group discussions, and we'll get to that later. Um, what do y'all think generally about what we're about to talk about? What do you th- why do you think it's important? <coughs> Speak out. You don't have to raise hands and stuff. Go for it. Because we're, in a sense, assaulted continuously by noise. Mm. Um, mm. To have a grounding and uh, and a response that that you understand mm-hmm. and steady you. Yeah, ministry is definitely a lot of noise and activity. Think about the issue of church power. What what does that? What's what's your first reaction to that word? Church power. I think in our uh, in our day we uh, we're, we're afraid or uh, skeptical or there's a lot of a lot that comes along that we just we're immersed in. Uh, yeah. so the idea of church power is scary. Mm-hmm. It is scary. A lot of abuse. Think about governing. The moment you you, you think of the concept of governing. Think about the power of governing, the effect, you know the effect that that has upon people's lives, in their relationship to God, in their relationship to one another, in their relationship to their church. I mean, governing is 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 a huge issue that should not be taken lightly, right? And yet, to your point, um, the more Christendom we get, the more susceptible we are to governing without going deep. We we take for granted. Um, practices and 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 rulings and precedences, and we never we go, and so you'll notice what I've. If you turn to your, by the way, does everybody have their handouts? And you put them in your second little folder there. Uh, the, there's two sets. Um, we're on the CPC Shepherd Training uh, Leaders Training Session Two. Notice the title: the preliminary, the preliminary principles of church power. I mean, think about how often. What, here, here's the here's the storyline. Somewhere back when you have a reformulation movement, where where it's gotten so bad, a generation says we've got to go back to the preliminary things to rediscover what this really is supposed to be. We call that the Reformation. I think we're in a, a significant movement of of a neo Reformation going on. Right now, I really do. Uh, it, it comes in variegated forms. It, it, you know, whether it's the emergent movement over here, whether it's the fundamentalist, you know, fundamentalism's on the rise. Every, you know, that's a big sign. Fundamentalism in every religion is on the rise. Why? Because you're saying, I want fundamentals. I want to go back to these first principles. I'm, I'm, I look at a world that's just going berserko. You can appreciate. It. I mean, you have the shades of gray bullshit coming out. <laughs> Sorry, I hope that reaction was the one you got. It is bull. It is crap. And yet we have a culture that is just wanting to gorge itself with it. That's what gives rise to fundamentalism. People say, man, we need hard law. Think about that. Or on the other hand, you have those who are just ruling, but they're ruling with no sense of, of principle so that we just make decisions based on what was made last time. And yet, 
circumstances change, nuances are, are lost. And so abuse comes from both sides. You, it comes from a nominal kind of, well, this is just the way we do it. No one would ever say those words, hardly. I guess some would, but this is the way we do it. What have you said? You said, well, I don't understand the preliminary principles. I just, this is how you do it. And that's exactly what created the 60s socially. You know, why don't, why can't we? <laughs> And, and a generation had lost the first the preliminary principles of their Christian faith. They didn't know why they they knew what Christianity said to do in practice, but they didn't know what Christianity meant and what it believes that made the practice what it was. You see what I'm saying? So th- this is this I I am not over exaggerating. This is the most important lesson uh, that we're going to have in this whole process. I believe. Um, I, I'm kind of glad you had three months to soak in it and hopefully go back and review it and read the readings because because I'm telling you, there is some ugly stuff going on in Christianity right now. Really ugly stuff in our denomination, like every other denomination. And it comes in many, many voices. It comes on the side of the evangelical and the side of the liberal. It comes on the side of the fundamentalist. It comes on the side of the nihilist. It's just, it's coming all over the place. And what I hear is, is just story after story of churches who are imploding, both in the PCA and other, and outside the PCA. Um, because it really comes down to the elders and really bad leadership and the leaders. And really bad leadership. I mean, I really believe there, there, you can just trace on how you react to a situation. How do you react to this and that? And, you know, it's constantly there's going to be, you know, wolves in sheep's clothing. And I don't mean the wolves know that they're wolves. It's their influence that might be wolves in sheep's clothing. There's going to be a constant sort of, you know, how do we, how do we rule about this issue? How do, what's, what's our policy going to be about this? How do we deal with these two people who are having a problem? And if we don't know how to mine deep and go back to, okay, but what is it we actually believe here? And let that belief then, every ruling needs to be creative in, to a certain degree, but every ruling needs to be grounded. And that is not an oxymoron. You know, every ruling, every decision, every every time you sit down and make an annual plan, you've got all sorts of tensions coming together, all sorts of this would be good and this would be good and this would be good and this would be good. How are you going to make a ruling as to what we do and what we don't? One of the things that we were talking about recently, I think uh, I think it was with the WLB uh, in my interactions with you all uh, this week, um, you know, the, the small group movement versus the... Um, large group, if I could put it that way, movement. And there's just a constant, uh, let's do more specialty things, or let's do, but then how do you push back to make sure that we don't create schisms and little pockets of cell groups, and what is the effect of turning a church over to nothing but small groups? Vis-a-vis community groups, vis-a-vis gender-specific Sunday school classes, vis-a-vis generation-specific Sunday school classes. What's the effect of that? What do we believe about the church, and how does that inform that decision? On the other hand, what would be the, the, the what would be the consequence of turning the church to what was, what's called a simple church model? Well, you do nothing but that. You know, Sunday morning, Wednesday night, Sunday night, everybody's together. 
And at the very least, you might do something, you know, some catechism with the kids uh, during one of those meetings. And that's the gist of a lot of what we call simple church model churches. And a lot of people are going back to it. They're so tired of all the programs. It's ironic, by the way. You know who, who are doing it? The emergent church family, kind of the family, the, the, the house church sort of merging movement is doing the same thing that the fundamentalist movement did over here in, in, in denominationalism. But and they don't see that they're doing it. But they're doing it for the same reasons, though. Ah, oh, programs. I'm busy. It's let's simplify. I got that. Now that's all kind of coming to. So I cannot emphasize. I, I I just cannot emphasize. I've dealt with so many things uh, in our denomination over the years where it really came down to. Gosh, we if only this session had kind of gotten deeper and thought about the preliminary principles of, of what church power is, what it means, its extent, its limits. You know, So I hope that these readings have helped you begin to think about that. Um, any other thoughts? I'm, I'm, I don't know. I'm so excited about it. I'm, I, I, I just got to do it, I guess. But go ahead. Well, I mean, I, think I, I always kind of come with a, a knee-jerk kind of leadership and I kind of tend to kind of be an anti-conformist in that regard and kind of put myself against authority and yeah. it, you know I take a lot of I take comfort when I see in people being intentional yes and not just trying to get authority be, because they want authority yeah. that is what I reject most amen well, one of the things we'll talk about many months from now when we start talking about the calling and, and how do we assess it, but one of the things I do think is important is that if someone seeks to be in a, in a role, a leadership role because their identity depends on it, you're in trouble. Um, it's really got to come out of a very strong comfortableness in being a child of God if it's and we have to always keep going back to it. You don't just get there one day and no, oh, now it's all that that wrestling match is all over. No, you're going to wrestle with that every day of your life in leadership. But uh, it's so vital what you're saying. And I see, you know, you so represent what gives me hope because the cynicism is well founded. Let's just be honest. I mean, if you, I know y'all don't think this way. Probably not many of it. If you, if if you, the the prolegomena I wrote in my dissertation is all an, analyzing modernity and how modernity affects Christianity. And, you know, you you just got to come out of modernity if you're healthy with skepticism. With, with sort of a, well, how, how, why? How come? I mean, I love to hear. I mean, I am a 60s kid too, but why? 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 Why do we have to do it that way? Why does it have to be done that way? And I'm very encouraged by that energy. And I'm encouraged by your, you just personified it uh, in some ways. And I like that. I think... The danger of that energy is you become a contrarian slash you don't do anything. You're just contrarian. You know the, con- the, the, the you don't build anything, as you say. You know, and that's that's the ne- that's the uh, the danger of the of that. And so, yeah, I appreciate your your balance there. You know, at some point we've got a you know, our sort of postmodern, which is what we're you know however that expression comes whether it's philosophical or social and those are different very different um, whatever your reaction is you at some point have to say well okay but when am I actually going to put my neck out on the limb and try to do something and build something and make something um, it's real easy to tear down a wall 
real easy. It takes great skill and, and great intentionality to build one. So that's what we're here to do. Anything else? All right. Well, let's pray, um, and then we'll uh, we'll get into it. So, very briefly, where we're going though is the outline is embedded in this thirty-page uh, um, handout, and um, and so you'll see it as it goes. But generally, what we're going to do is we're going to uh, start with Clowney as sort of a of a you know starting point. And from Clowney, I'm going to try to introduce you or get you into the confessional and the biblical sort of aspects of power, some of those things that pertain to it. And then, and Clowney sort of creates this twofold, um, if you read Clowney, he has two parts of what he says are the distinctives of Presbyterian um, uh, power or polity, whatever he calls it. And um, and so it, it fits neatly into into what we'll say there, and then from there, um, which so that'll take our first major segment. From there, we're going to be breaking up into small groups, and you're going to and Craig's going to lead us uh, in some time of reflection of Bannerman, making sure we've kind of mined it a little, mined it for the, the sort of nuggets that we're looking for, and he's produced a handout for that that'll, that you should have as well. And then, um, and then after that, we're gonna get, we're gonna step, that'll be second break. And then after that, we're gonna come back and, and clean it all up with, with looking at these four distinctions we have to make. Um, like the weak and the strong against, over against, say, the wicked. And so you'll see different things, joint and several forms and elements. In that last section, I'm introducing you to these, these sort of four, okay, we've gotta, we've gotta, understand the distinction and how that affects the use of church power um, and and it's very important when we start getting into that stuff and I think this is where we'll get real good in some of the readings like um, um, The Weak and the Strong by Murray uh, will be one of the, those for example and some others alright, any questions? righty. who'd like to pray for us? David, would you? Heavenly Father, thank you so much Day, a nice day that we can get in here today. Father, I'm encouraged by the number of people who come to this uh, as our pastor has mentioned. We pray that you bless each one of us, Father, with uh, their minds, the ability to absorb this information and to then process it and move forward in your grace. In Jesus' name. So just try to get us back into the stratosphere of this stuff. It's been a while, hasn't it? I can't believe it. We, we, by now we should be in our, about our sixth lesson, but it just seems like God's providence has wanted us to slow down. So all right, we'll, we'll follow it. But last session, um, we, we really wanted to look at the church, and, and we, there was two main points you remember. The church is the epicenter of the kingdom of God. And we, we sort of baked in that for a while, what that means, and just believing again in the church. Uh, as the epicenter of God. They, and we mean by that, of course, the visible, organized church. The one built on the foundation of the apostles with Christ as the cornerstone. So we had a wonderful conversation about that. You'll remember here are a few excerpts there. Um, you know, we think of Matthew 16. Again, I'm letting you look at it. I'm not going to go through it. Uh, Bannerman, again, the church is a divine institution owing its origin not to man but to Christ and associated together not in consequence of human arrangement but by God's appointment. That is a huge statement because that's what we describe as jura divino um, ecclesiology. That is, that, that the church 
a biblical church is what it is, not because of human ingenuity. It's, a, it's there, and we mean by that beyond just the fact that it exists, but we mean by that, he means by that, no, the architecture. The architectural design. I mean, the, the kind of thing that, that is typed in the Old Testament when Christ, when God built the temple, happens in the New Covenant, albeit in a spiritual sort of... And by spiritual, I don't mean abstract necessarily, but spiritual in the sense that it's not this geographical place. But it's this conceptual place with real institutions... Like officer, you know, how do we govern ourselves? What is our constitution? And we believe the constitution and the the governing architecture or polity we call it, uh, and the worship of God, all three of those we we're going to believe, and you're going to read about it again, is derived by good and necessary inference from Scripture, so that we don't add to it or take away from it. It's a, it's that kind of high view. That's what we call high church, in the good sense of that word. <laughs> Um, and then so we had this, you know, you think of Ephesians 1 and then uh, Martin Booser. So part two was then looking at the, the call of the shepherd leader and, and just sort of an introduction to, you know, we looked at Whit, uh, Whit, Whitmer. What's his name again? Whit, the, the book you read? Whitmer. Whit, Whit. Whitmer. Whitmer. Thank you. Yes, Whitmer. Um, and uh, and we looked really at this idea of the call of, of the shepherd leader, and um, we, we introduced some of this stuff. And you remember um, t- thinking about leadership in, insofar as it's related to that on earth as it is in heaven. That's a really crucial concept that we'll be mining deeper today. The idea that there is supposed to be a real correlation between what we do on earth and what God is envisioning and doing in heaven and that there is this and it changes everything I mean it just changes everything um, why we do what we do <laughs> what's the the ends if you will and you see that in our in our uh, the purpose of church authority in Westminster Confession of Faith 30 and um, and and again I want to read this because I want us to start I'm, that was a very quick review but but I want us to start with this this dose of, of reality that why we can't enter into the issue of the, of the use of church power lightly. So if someone could read Westminster Confession of Faith, Chapter 30, it's in your handout. Or just, why don't we just take turns? One, two, three, you know. So who would just get started if we could read it? Let's listen to what we believe as a church is our consensus. By the way, when you read out of the Book of Church Order, I mean, the Westminster Confession of Faith, you're reading, of course, 350 years ago, and, and it's been modified, of course. But if you're, look, if you're reading the Book of Church Order today, you might not know this, that's coming out of the second Scottish Book of Discipline, most of it. It's been modified, of course, in an American way. But um, it, was, it, was, uh, it was the document... Um, that comes out of Knox and, and some of those concepts, but it was very—it's just—it's just unbelievable uh, uh, in terms of its its thoughtfulness as it reflects upon the consensus of Westminster. So that's what you're doing, just so you know where it came from. Someone read one. The Lord Jesus, as King and head of His Church, hath therein appointed a government in the hands of church officers distinct from the civil magistrate. To these church, to these officers, the keys of the kingdom of heaven are committed, by virtue whereof they have power, respectively, to retain and remit sins, to shut that kingdom against the impenitent, both by the word and censures, and to open it unto penitent sinners by the ministry of the gospel, 
and by absolution from censures, as occasion shall require. Church censures are necessary for the reclaiming and gaining of offending brethren, for deterring of others and the like offenses, for purging out of that leaven which might infect the whole lump, for vindicating the honor of Christ and the holy profession of the gospel, and for preventing the wrath of God which might justly fall upon the church if they should suffer his covenant and the seals thereof to be profaned by notorious and obstinate offenders. What's your impression? What what is the what what is the ends? What's the purpose of church power here? To retain the purity of the gospel. Yeah, and and it really is gospel centered. I mean, it's put in old English, but I mean old language. But it's to bring people to the forgiveness of sins, remitting, retaining, and remitting sins. It's to protect the kingdom of God. The word and the sacraments and all that it, it, it is in terms of a means of grace. And it's to open the kingdom to those who are not of it. I mean, evangelism. I mean, you could say this in new words, but this really is about the gospel. Um, and that's this idea of power. When we think of power now, um, often we think of power only in one mark way in terms of a government. But power that's here in vision is what we do, it's, it's the power of worship and word and sacrament. It's the power of, of government to be sure and how we govern and rule in terms of shepherding. But when you think of the word power, don't let it sort of become a, a micro sort of concept for you. The use of power and the readings that you've been reading envision any exercise uh, of authority on behalf of the church, and, it's, and it ranges from its pro positive and proactive stuff as with its reactive stuff. It's 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 both, as we'll see later when we get it, I think it's next week or two weeks from now, we're going to get into actually the, the discipline issues of discipline. But when we use even the word discipline, uh, discipline envisions preaching the gospel on Sunday. It envisions not only teaching, but correcting. And life-on-life discipleship. It involves oversight and watching over the flock of God. These are all prevenient, if you will, graces. Things which hopefully uh, prevent uh, any situation that would raise itself up to where you'd be on, on the other side of discipline. So you're being disciplined right now. How does it feel? <laughs> but you are. You're being disciplined in that word. You are right now submitting yourself to church power by being here. So when you st- think of this word power, don't 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 miniaturize it into this sort of a when the church acts corporately or uh, ex cathedra and pronounces a statement of whatever or makes a judgment of whatever. Uh, it's 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 everything. It's the use of power. So it's I want to make sure you see that and, and that I think envisions that for you. Any questions on that? I just, just listening here when you think about church centers and, and about the shepherding aspects, it really just fits in mm-hmm. when I think about it, the first bullet. But that last bullet really gives me pause. You know, 
focus on preventing the wrath of God. Yeah. That. Yeah. I don't, I'm just. I'm still processing that. No, we, we. We. That's good. What do you think? That's. What does he mean there? What's he talking about? What. What does the church mean by that? What. What is the wrath here that that we would. We would. What would that mean? No, it feels like God turning his back on your body of believers. Well, and and so in effect, he's declaring it not a church anymore. Exactly. It's no longer a church. Look, and and, and if you think for one moment that's not possible, I mean, there there are some churches that I can think of that have lasted a couple hundred years. You know, Park Street, one I always look to, it gives me a little bit of, oh, thank God I see an example. Here's a church that's been around for hundreds and hundreds of years, and somehow, by God's grace, it's remained a beacon for the gospel in that city. There's something pretty special about that. But, you know, but but generally, <laughs> I don't know what the rule is. I don't know what, but if you look at a particular church, a particular church, I don't know. I don't know, you know, I have no, you've heard me kind of intuit it every once in a while. I, we're, we're, we're trying very hard to build a church that's, that's, that's built on a foundation so that that foundation can then continue. That's the danger, I think, of some of the, the cowboy methods of, of church planning where we, where we're just so quick to get people in the room and we're so quick to be, you know, on the next denominational bulletin or denominational newsletter that, I mean, I don't think anybody would say that's really their motivation, but it's probably in, in, in there somewhere just this notion that I'm successful when we have a big church. And, yeah, it, it, it'll be like a mushroom. You'll have people governing it that have no clue what, what, they, what it is. And you'll have people experiencing that have not really been gone deep with it. And so I think it's very interesting here, you know, how, how much work needs to go into building a church that, but you're right, that, but it involves, and it's not just on the front end by any stretch. That's probably the most exhausting part of it. You gotta keep at it. <laughs> you know, it, it's just, it, it just, you can't say, oh wow, whew, we built that church, whew. We planted it, it's done. Oh no! It's you're re, you're planting that thing every time you meet in a session, every time you meet as a WLB, every time you you worship, you are planting something, and it's got seeds and it's growing. Lisa, one of the things I was thinking about when we were reading through this list is like the whole idea of the power of the gospel and need to preserve it. Mm-hmm. But um, I'm thinking back to one of the vows that we take as members to uphold peace and purity. And the whole idea of the peace part of it, and the fact that for purging out that leaven, which might affect the whole world, mm-hmm. and just the whole wisdom that the session has to have. Well, and I'm going to keep. It's not just the session, but thank you. But it's you're right. But let's. It's the session. It's every member, and and their graduated leadership roles, because you, every leader is participating in that vow, right, and and has a huge stake in and making it. Happen one way or the other, but yeah, good point. Look at look at what we're saying here again. We're still sort of in the review, but but Thomas Torrance contends that quote the Christian Church then is what it is because of an indissolvable dissolvable union with Christ through the Spirit. Now this is getting really deep sacramental language here, but if we understand what we read, what we talked about last session, there's this there, there's this. Essential, and I mean that word logically. There's essential union between Christ in heaven and the church on earth. Essential. Therefore, the church is an essential 
element of the gospel. And this is where this whole thing about church power has to start. Do you really believe that this power, this power that is all encompassing, as we just said, do you, do you, have you come to the place in your life where you believe this is essential? If you haven't, you're bucking out when it gets tough, or you're not going deep with these principles because you're thinking, oh, well, it's, you know, it's not that big a deal. Come on. And it's so in vogue now, especially coming out of Christendom, to have this casualness about this stuff. It's, oh, well, yeah, we all know church politics. We all know church this. We, guys, I'm, I'm trying to inspire you to be an idealist again. To, to not let the cynicism that I see in Christendom, and especially I see it, you know, in, in, in places where the PCA is its strongest in our own denomination. And I, it's just this sort of constant sort of this, I've really arrived somehow. I've somehow graduated from questions like polity, questions like, you know, session. Come on, we're all Christians. We're global Christians here. We don't need to get local on this stuff because local means concrete. Local means real people's lives and names. And we were in a collaborative the other day, and, and we were looking at the issue of race and, and some other issues by one of our collaborators who's down in in uh, Florida. And it was great, but then we kind of stepped back and said, guys, this is all so great. We were reading an essay about Thurman, and it was great on, on hate and, and, and the issue of race and some of these issues. And uh, at some point, though, we were all getting so abstract. We were, oh, I said, guys, we, we've got, let's get this down here. I mean, you know, so am I supposed to look over to the Trumbull Church and say you're wrong if you live in Trumbull? Uh, because you really need to be in a multicultural church down in the city? Should we just go ahead? Is that what you want to do? Just blow up every church except for the ones that are in the city? Because a lot of this stuff was talking about how it would be great if we were all in one room and all that. And, uh, you know, and it's just amazing how we, leave, we've, we don't go there in this nice kind of post-organization, post-sort of world. You know? and, and it's like, God, we've got to start thinking deeper with these principles and deriving creative. We all agreed that there needed to be face-to-face engagement between the rich and the poor, between races and etc. There has to be more of that in our lives. But how are you going to get there? And, and how are you going to get there? We've wrestled with that here in the city, as you know, with, or, or with our excitement about the Hill. And um, how do you get there without a press, what, with hegemony not controlling the, the, the flesh? Do we believe the flesh of, the, of a local body is important in our sacramentology? You bet we do. We believe, see this is the first preliminary prayer, we believe that your flesh completes the sacrament. Now you can take that too far. But your flesh is the flesh in the mystery of ontological communion with Christ. And that's what Torrance is saying here. There's an indissoluble union between Christ through the Spirit for in him is consecrated the church and its ministry. You know, this is amazing. There's only one ministry that of Christ in his body. In other words, the, the, think about that. The, the body. We, we've, we've abstracted that. But he means there is a body. Organic body, Paul says. And that Paul, why have, we, why have we spiritualized that so much? And he means there is a body. And in that body, there are many parts. 
And how do these principles then, so how would we think about, okay, now, God, what would it be to violate, if you've understood the regular principle, this idea that, okay, this is the way we do leadership in a church in terms of its social-cultural form. This is the way we do worship in a church in terms of its social-cultural form. What would it mean to bias this vernacular over against this vernacular in worship? What would it mean to, for this particular, for a church to say, well, most of us here come out of an Anglo or come out of a whatever you want to call it, kind of a style of vernacular, and therefore this is the kind of songs we're going to sing and worship. If you'd been reading Bannerman and the preliminary principles, you'd see how horrible that kind of notion is. That we have constrained the conscience in a manner through the worship service, in a manner where a person must first come to whatever this... I don't know, this form of prayers and songs and leadership styles before he or she can fully commune with Christ. That's, that's the kind of stuff that gets you know, localized when you start talking about these principles. So, so look at this statement. We'll make sure you believe this. That, you know, beyond, it's all through our church history. I just quote Calvin. Beyond the pale of the church, there is no forgiveness of sins. There's no salvation can be hoped for. Do you believe that? Because I do. Now, I'll put the word ordinarily. I believe that God is supernatural and can do anything He wants to do. And He does. But even if you use this word, how much of our gospel that might go out in a non- church environment was preserved and declared and made orthodox by the by the, the organized church of history. I mean, even the gospel that, I know, you know, and you're a church woman if ever there was one, but you're also on staff of the parachurch ministry, which we support and we're excited about. It excites me because much of what Crusade is doing and much of what AIA is doing is piggybacking, quite frankly, on wars. <laughs> Wars of theological controversy that elders did for them, that pastors did for them, meeting as a church. So they come out and say, well, everybody knows about the Trinity, don't we? Well, they didn't in the third century. Or not, not in a way that was codified. You say, and off we go. So, um, so beyond the pale of the church, no forgiveness of sins, no salvation can be hoped for. The paternal favor of God and the special evidence of spiritual life are confined for His peculiar people, and hence the abandonment of the church is always fatal. And then back to leadership. There, they therefore are insane who neglect this means. Hope to be perfect in Christ, as in the case with the fanatics. The fanatics today would be those who are outside the church. These are the Anabaptists which aren't necessarily the Baptists today. Don't, don't make that mistake. Who pretend to secret revelations of the Spirit and, and the proud who content themselves with the private readings of Scripture and imagine they do not need the ministry of the church. I mean, does that not sound like modern evangelicalism? I mean, this is stuff was written now. How was Calvin now? How many years? Yeah, 400 years ago. I mean, you, you, you would think this is a textbook right today. 400 years ago. This is also was written in the Donatist controversy. Same thing. And Augustine stood opposed. Same thing. There's always been a trend to do it in a different way. 
Any questions about anything we've said? And then if not, we're going to start rolling with now what we're going to do for the rest of the day. That was just a bit of a get you back into the into the what we did last time. Any thoughts about that? Yeah. This may be sentimental, but when I hear this, I think of the promise that Jesus made. I will never leave you. Yeah. I will never forsake you. Good. And that is where he is never leaving us. Exactly. Has he made that promise? Good. Where does someone talk back to me when my logic, when my reasoning is wrong? Lisa and I were just talking on the way over. Um, won't go into the context here, but um, just yeah, how sad it is uh, for people to be, for some friends of ours, some people, close people to us, how sad that they encounter difficulties. People who've been as faithful to the church as anyone could possibly be. And how devoid of the means of grace through a proper understanding and theology of death and dying. How, how the church has just not fulfilled its purpose in mediating the wisdom and the counsel of Christ to its people. So that when they encounter these issues, they have a framework. It's just unbelievable how sad it is to me. And these are... Devout as devout as devout people as you could be now in their 80s dealing with these issues. And they really, after 70 years of devotedly putting their heart and soul into, their, into a gospel-centered evangelical church, have limited construct to deal with the biggest crisis in their life. I mean, this is, this is serious stuff. And that's what you're talking about. Where is Christ? How does Christ come to us? He comes to us in word. The wisdom and the counsel of a well-mined scripture through the voice of the church that doesn't capitulate to make it easy for me, Pastor. Knowing what you're going to encounter one day. you know, And not just that. Sacraments. Presence. Shepherd. Counseling. Governing. That's Christ's presence. You're right. You got it. That's exactly what what he is talking about. Anything else? Well, enough of my getting you ready. Um, I know you're kind of going. Come on, you sound like Bannerman here. You're going deeper and deeper. All right. So let's let's start looking at some preliminary principles. Um, first of all, uh, hopefully you got to you didn't skip the readings of our of our confessional standards that I uh, re- suggested. I know that again the temptation would be what. Here we go. Yeah, I know that. I've been in this church for 20 years. Really? Man, I'm telling you. I keep mining it and realizing there. You, you realize it took over uh, 1,180 1, something days for the best theological minds that lived on the planet to meet in a convention. And can you imagine the time and energy up to word crafting that was put to this? And it's amazing how often I keep rediscovering, whoa, that was an amazing word choice. It was like drinking a meat slurp. <laughs> <laughs> I love it, man. You missed your calling. If I could just put you and me together in that pulpit, boy, we would kill the world. Um, I love it. Thank you. Well, let's, let's just not take it for granted and let's read it slowly here. Uh, again, I'm going to ask you to read it, paragraph at a time. Jesus Christ, 
upon whose shoulders the government rests, having all power given unto him in heaven and in earth by the Father, and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. He being ascended up far above all heavens, that he might fill all things, received gifts for his church, and gave all offices necessary for the edification of his church and the perfecting of his saints. It belongs to his majesty from his throne of glory to rule and teach the church through his word and spirit by the ministry of men, thus immediately exercising his own authority and enforcing his own laws unto the edification and the establishment of his kingdom. Christ as king has given to his church officers, oracles, and ordinances, but especially has he ordained therein his system of doctrine, government, discipline, and worship, all of which are either expressly set down in scripture or by good and necessary inference may be deduced therefrom, and to which things he commands that nothing be added and that from them not to be taken away. Since the ascension of Jesus Christ to heaven, he is present with the church by his word and spirit, and the benefits of his offices are effectually hmm. applied by the Holy Ghost. If you have a pen in that last paragraph, I meant to underline present, and I meant to underline effectually, <laughs> if you want to keep meditating. Now, every one of those underlines are words where, if you were to stop and just just go deep with that and put together everything else that you've learned, you'll notice, especially in this little preface coming out of our Church of Book Order, how much of the language is taken from the Confession. You'll notice especially uh, several chapters in the confession when you go to it chapter 30 talking about officers and their duties you'll you'll recognize chapter 1 and the role of scripture real prominent here Um, but notice just briefly a couple of these things Um, the filleth all in all quotation I mean that's that's what we that's where we derive where Augustine came to the idea of the what he called total Christ Uh, we use it here a lot Um, the idea that Christ is not complete in the abstract word that's in heaven in that pure sense we believe there's a pure word a word that was contextualized that was contextualized in in 2000 years ago in the scriptures but a word that continually needs to be contextualized in the flesh of the people by the body of Christ in order that we would have total Christ fill all in all and that's a really crucial thing there that we've just referred to. Secondly, notice the immediately language. That the presence of Christ is immediately or mediated. Now, there's a lot of folks, even within our tradition, that feel uncomfortable with the word mediatorial body of Christ. It was probably one of the most common phrases that was used within our tradition, among others, to describe the nature of the church. What is the church? It's the mediatorial body of Christ. Now why do you think there's been such a and this is a great example of when you're not grounded in fundamental or preliminary principles why we start losing our theology. Why do you think someone would be a little bit nervous about that language in our tradition? What battle are they still fighting? Go ahead. So a backlash against the Roman Catholicism yeah. where your sins could only be forgiven through the priest yeah. uh, giving you Exactly. and you paying penance and doing all these things where 
the church really owned your soul both in this life. So there's a we need to we need to mind deeply with that word. What do you mean by immediately? Don't we? We need to go deep with that word. What you're going to find, as we've mined it in our sacramentology here and written on it, and it's in publishing and everything else, is that okay? We need to distinguish the the, the agent of grace, the Holy Spirit, from the church. But we also need to distinguish the church as an instrument or means in the empowered by the Spirit from those who have no means and no instruments that are divinely appointed or no. So you have churches, uh, you have the agent and you have no, you have no mediatorial, you have no real conferring of grace promised through the ministry of the church necessarily. And we're, we're, we're gonna say we're right here. And I'd say we're here with Lutherans, we're here with, with Episcopalians or, or Anglicans, we're here with, with Presbyterians, we're here with Reform, Continental Reformed. We are here and we say, oh, hold it now, don't confuse the body of Christ with the, as being the agent. The agent is God. Predicated by the divine elections eventually and those whom he effectually calls. But don't then take away the, the the scaffold, if you will, in the hands of the Holy Spirit. There is a link there. And so it's not no grace. Big word, immediately. Notice now the word, I'm going to go down a little bit more. Um, notice doctrine, government, discipline, and worship. Those are often described as the three marks of the church. We add here two to make sure we understand what was implied here. Gospel-centered and missional. So five marks, gospel-centered, missional, word, sacrament, government. And you see what he's saying there, that the presence of Christ and his glory and all this other stuff, it's mediated through those things. Notice then the words um, that's really all of which, now here's the power issue. All of which are either expressly set down in Scripture or by good and necessary inference may be deduced from um, deduced therein, to which things he commands that nothing be added and that from them not anything be taken away. That is what's described as the regular principle. That the church, in order to preserve its mediatorial power, must intentionally and thoughtfully limit itself and extend itself carefully regulated by nothing but the Word of God. Where the Word has set us free, we need to set people free. Where the Word needs to bind and prevent, the Word needs to bind and prevent. Now, if you've come from Christendom, CPCA Christendom, and I mean by that usually in the South, you have a... I'm, I'm, I, can, I believe very likely you have a very bad or misunderstanding, bad misunderstanding of the regular principle. I say that anecdotally. I can't prove it. Um, I say it from countless opportunities of teaching this, both in seminary and to the collaborative and everybody. And when they read Clowney... And when they read Bannerman and they begin to see how much of this principle is driven not only to preserve the gospel, but also for the sake of charity, to preserve the freedom of conscience that the gospel procured for us, they they go, that is not the way this concept came to be somehow. They see it only as restrictive. 
And the regular principle, why had you read, for instance, John Murray's passage, is to show you how much that principle also is meant to uh, not restrict, but set free. In fact, as you'll see today, uh, that principle is constantly in our confession related to the free to the freedom of a Christian, and not by and not and then under charity, not binding conscience where conscience was never meant to be bound. It's really meant to limit, to regulate the church, and that's the language right out of our confession, chapter one, uh, section six a. And it's the language I want everyone in this room to memorize. It is the most significant issue that you want to think about deeply in terms of the use of the preliminary principle, first principles of church power. Um, and then it speaks of the ascension ministry of Christ, and yet that idea of presence. I mean, don't don't just read over that. Oh, that's such that's prose. No, it's not prose. This is when you read this stuff. This is constitution. So think about how you would read a constitution different from the way you're going to read uh, a nice Christian book. This is governing uh, material here. Okay, that's one thing. By the way, it's going to be different when you read a book of church order and when you read uh, Westminster Confession of Faith. And then you read commentary on it, like from Bannerman and etc. Understand that you're doing law here. I mean, we could go to Chris. I mean, you're reading this differently. You're, you're thinking, hold it. That word could could turn a case. You know, we got to get down and look at the present. See, the question is, Christ has ascended. Scratch my head. So where is he present now? And the word presence there is with the church by his word and spirit and the benefits of his offices are effectually. That means mediatorial. That means we think that when you preach word and when you govern and when you do sacraments, that grace is conferred. You hear that? Grace is conferred. And then you're going to say, but, whoa, 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 aren't we going back to what you described, Reeves, as sacerdotal? The word you're looking for is sacerdotalism. It's not just Roman. It can be anywhere. And sacerdotalism is the idea that, that it's like magic. And then bounce back, whoa, but there's a lot of other things that, that comes with this undefinition of mediatorial. Insofar as, and it ultimately is going to come down to insofar as God and his divine sovereignty has chosen to use the church in the manner which he is proportioned for it. But even with that, insofar as, well, let's start talking about how we preserve the means of grace, right? So that's, that's a very amazing way to start the book of, of church order, which was written again. It came, it's, it's, this is language right out of the second book of, of discipline that came out of the Reformation in Scotland. But you could see the same language in Calvin. You could even see the same language in 100 A.D. in the Apostolic Constitution. It was one of the first constitutions that written by the church. You could see some of the same kind of language here. So this isn't new. Yeah? So, um, I think we describe our church on five tenets, right? Of yep. uh, gospel-centered, missional, sacramental, and And then were you tying... Doctrine, government, discipline, and worship to four of those five? Three. Three? It says it two are repeated, but three. Word, sacrament, government. The way you think of the five marks is 
it's speaking to how it is that Christ mediates himself through the church. And that's through word. So think of these vertical sort of pipelines that God comes to us through, right? Word, sacrament, government. Shepherding, care, if you will. What we did is we, what the confession will do and what our tradition will do, but most importantly what the scripture will do, is it always qualifies these things, these three marks, that they must be informed by what I call the, the teleological or the eschatological or the purpose of these. And so far as these things are used for the right purpose, they are a means of grace. And so I put that in there, and we put that in there here, and that's why we formed the five marks of the church out of it. Which, because it is. <laughs> because you'll see language everywhere in here that will describe, well, insofar as the word is, and, and so many words, it will say gospel-centered. It's the gospel. The moment that you could have a ministry of word in this church, but if it's no longer gospel-centered, it's no longer the true word. You see? And that's one of the big arguments that the reformers made, is that, yeah, you have all the, 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 the architecture of the church, but you've lost the gospel and you've lost the mission of it. That's what Christ said to some degree to the Jews. Man, yeah, you're doing all the sacrifices, you're doing all the temple stuff, but man, I want no part of that stuff. Why? Because they lost the mission of it. The Gentiles were being excluded when the court of the Gentiles was meant to include them. They had a specific room in the temple, totally set apart so that it could be useful to evangelism. Now that's structural language to saying we have a metaphysical room in our spirituality here that makes room for evangelism in everything we do. And so that's that gets so that's why we added that. Thank you for asking. So five marks. Well, let's let's move in into a um, clowning. If you have the, does anybody here have a hard copy or a copy on, on in front of them? Everybody have a copy in front of them? Good. If you have a, how many do? Just raise your hand. I want to know who I can call on. Okay. I'm going to get you, I, I can't believe I left home and I have a digital copy and I left it in my book. Um, so I won't be able to read it, but I do, I was, you know, providentially I got to put the page numbers and the paragraphs actually in here. So, uh, to help me know where I wanted to go quick. So we can use you for that. But what, what y'all think of Clowney, by the way? That is a, let me just say, and then I'll get you to say, but I, I, it, is, it is unbelievable how well it summarizes uh, the issues we've got to talk about today. What would you all think about it? Just generally, what would you get out of it? Yeah. Easier to read than the banner. Yeah, I bet it is. Of course, he read it, wrote it when? Uh, yeah, Bannerman was in a different era, and he's in our era. He just died relatively recently, and he, he really is a good churchman. And he and it's interesting. He's had a huge influence, and, and um, a, he's one of these rare people that I aspire to be. And I'm not saying I am, but who bridges the high church, high gospel divide. He's one of these guys that could sit in the room with a group of church planters and and M and A. And he used to be involved in our M and A movements, uh, Mission North America. And you know, he he really understood the gospel in a way that was missional. But then he would also he had a very high view of the doctrine of the church. And he understood why it could be gospel irrelevant. And this is a guy that I look at and say, you know, this, this is the kind of guy I'd like to be. Now, I use his early work in my seminary class. I don't use his most recent, the one he wrote re- more recently. He was trying to get a little more palatable. And it's called just the church. 
but I'd like much more. Uh, he has an earlier volume on the church that I think is better for you. You want to look him up and read. It's called I can't remember the name of it now, but it's really a biblical theology of the church. Um, but yeah, what'd you think? What'd you get out of it, basically? Guys, into the worship aspect and what's commanded. Um, yeah. Always been kind of a yeah. gap for me. Yeah. What is commanded? It was a lot of you know, it was home church then. It was worshiping private secrecy and how we develop that into modern mm-hmm. church uh, services. It struck me because it's kind of always. Uh, and if and if he's hitting preliminary principles, which is what he's trying to do, he what he call him the the. Uh, the distinctive emphasis. But if you're looking at, he's looking at two what he thinks are just overarching sort of, here are the principles of our understanding of church power and and, work, and life. And it's not just about worship, though he uses worship as an example. Um, it shows you how you should be able to trace those, if I could be a good church historian, insofar as it's apostolic and built upon the foundation of Christ, is a cornerstone. These principles would be just as true for a house church as it would be for a for a church today, wouldn't it? And that's the idea of what hopefully he achieved. I don't know. He obviously was relating it to perhaps issues that are he was dealing with about fifty years ago. Um, he wrote this in a in a book for the OPC denomination. No, he's not. I don't think he's OPC, but um, no, he's not. But he wrote it. It was a chapter in their commemorative fifty year commemorative, and it really is a good essay. Yeah. You know, well, the thing that I really want to, to this is sort of a this is going to set in motion the rest of the day. So it's going to be simple. We're going to keep mining it deeper. But what's interesting is the way in which those two parts. So what did he do? He had two parts there. He he, he described the regulative principle, and then he called it the organic principle. Now, when you think of organic, now what are you thinking about? Thinking of flesh, right? The regulative principle. If you think about the Word became flesh and templed among us. What's the temple consist of? No, don't go by the passage. The Word became flesh and templed among us. What is the church, the temple, consist of? Word and flesh. Very good. Now this is really important. You just heard, in one sentence, the whole thesis of a biblical theology of the church. Where you can say something this magnanimous, this ridiculously profound and inclusive, that there was never a time in all of redemptive history where there was a salvation from God apart from the covenantal Word. Covenant becomes a huge concept with this idea of word covenant. And you can also say there was never a time in all of redemptive history where there was salvation apart from that word being in the midst of the people in a concrete way. In the that it did not come into the flesh of the people somehow. Now, sometimes it happens in a very immediate sense, and we call that the incarnation. 
Jesus was the Word that became flesh. Therefore, Jesus is the the what we call the anti-type temple, the type which all other types then follow. And I'm going to quote, you'll see in a minute when we get to this, then Ephesians, because Paul's going to take the same concept and say, you know, that Jesus Christ is the head of the church, the Word. Now, Word is abstract. Word in its, it is, is divine. Word is that undiluted, unmessed up. It's the pure essence of God. Who And Word is bigger than just language. Word is power in the Scripture. It creates things. It does things. So Word has to at some point become flesh and dwell among us. And we call that a temple or a church. When the two come together, the ascension, the incarnation, mediated through the church. And if you read Ephesians 2, 1, 2, and 4, it's exactly what Paul is doing. It forms the framework of Ephesians. This this God downward, God descends, God man upward, God ascend, man ascends, and that's going on with this word that comes down, that then comes to flesh, the flesh which then brings humanity back up to God. And it's this amazing dynamic of what defines pastoral ministry in the church. That's what we do. We're priestly that way. We go up a mountain, we bring God down to the people, we bring people in prayer and, and sacrament, etc., back up to God. It's just doing this constantly. It's, it's like a little train, you know, going back and forth. And that's, that's what you basically saw Clowney doing. He says, look, we can't lose sight of the regulative principle which preserves the word. Yet we can't lose sight of the other side of this principle where the word becomes flesh, the organic principle. And now, this is where you Anglicans maybe have a little, you're going to be a little nervous on one point of what he said, right? Did you read it? Okay, clowning. Yeah, the second part, organic. Um, and they're not, they're Christians. I don't mean to do that. We, we have a little fun little thing because they know how much I, I We have a fondness because I'm very attracted to that tradition as well. But, um, but the point I'm making here is that, uh, we all have an app. It wasn't fun. No. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. That's my point. Yeah, not trying to say that. Um, so my point is, is that that um, you, you, you don't lose what that. Con- I'm, make sure you don't lose the meta narrative here. Don't lose that when he starts talking about why we think of where our epicenter of the church is, and not in any human. We don't. Be- it gets down to the issue of apostolic succession. How is that succession? Is it through a human succession? If so, you're, you're back to the fights. Who's the real human? Who succeeds Peter and where does he live? Does he live in Constantinople? Does he live in Canterbury? Does he live in Rome? Does he live in, in Atlanta, Georgia, PCA? Where does this, this, this flesh, this form live? Which then will subscribe, will, 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 will declare forms for worship. So therefore, while I love the Book of Common Prayer, I'm theologically opposed to its, its agenda. I love it. We use it a lot here. But I use it not because it's prescribed to us to use it. I use it when I find that the flesh and the theology match this particular congregation. And I love it because it's deeply embedded with beautiful 
redemptive historical gospel-centered theology, to be sure, especially the older ones. But but my point is is, is that so it's, you see what I just did. I want you to see what I did carefully. That was a lot of first preliminary principles coming into that statement. On the one hand, I say I know that all word has to become flesh. It got it's got to get organic. But I'm not willing to concede that the organic nature of that word is in any way identified with any cultural context. If you don't think that's not going to come up tons of time in church power and you're governing, you've got something coming. Distinguishing between what we describe as elements and forms. Believing that elements represent the word in its, in its pure and abstract form as from good and necessary inference of Scripture. But the way in which it gets becomes organic, must in every single local context. You have to go back to the preliminary principle and ask what would it look like in this particular local context. So word, there's a lot of things going on here. Word, global. Organic, local. Word, abstract. You know, uh, uh, flesh, what I say, word, yeah, global, flesh, whatever, organic, is going to be concrete. You know, uh, on and on you go. You know, what is it? And so when you look at the regular principle, we were talking about it earlier, on the one hand, it's going to regulate. On the one hand, power needs to regulate itself as to not in any way dilute or jeopardize the abstract word that is governing everything from heaven. And thus all that language, by good and necessary inference, da 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 every bit of that is meant to say, whatever we do, we can't go beyond the word or lesser of the word, below the word, in terms of a rule of faith and practice. But how does that then affect you governing? Well, on the one hand, it's going to say, I can't force, it's going to reg, it's going to, it's going to limit authority. We can't pronounce as rule what by good and necessary inference from the Holy Scriptures cannot be derived. On the other hand, and that's going to restrain a lot of things that we do in terms of our subscription. What we subscribe to is the word of faith, as the word of, is our consensus of faith. It's going to deal with our creed. It's going to deal with what we do in worship. Why? What is unique about worship to a Christian? Do you have to come to Sunday school? No, not morally. Stupid not to, but not morally. Do you have to come to a small group? I mean, can I by good and necessary inference say, you've got to be a part of a small group? Can I, by good and necessary effort, say, you've got to be here right now? Can I, by good and necessary effort, say, and you can go on and on and on? No. But can I, by good and necessary effort, say, you, Christian, except for reasons of absolute uh, you know, necessity, you, a rule is that you come to worship on Sunday. God 
set that apart as different from every other thing in your life and higher than everything in your life. That's the idea. <laughs> that there is this thing. It happens that he prescribes. And by God, it is the Lordship of Christ at stake. Now, if that's what you believe, and if the church understood that about worship, what can we do? Can we do anything there? Because aren't you not bound to go? And when you're there, aren't you not bound to participate? (laughs) So can we ask you to participate in anything? that is contrary to or even beside the Word of God? Because to participate in anything beside the Word is to bind conscience. Now that's part one. Part two, organic. But for us to do anything less than to contextualize those elements of worship that are are regulated as I just described into a form that truly represents the local, social, cultural flesh of the people. What that means is the way in which this form would be most fully expressed in its intent for this particular people. If the word directs that this element should be for the sake of, say, reverence or penance or whatever, what accompanying flesh circumstances would enable the participant to most fully access the fullness of that, per, that, that moment in worship. What instruments communicate or not the idea of coronation and a coronation hymn? Do the drums? Well, maybe it just gets those big old, what do you call those big old drums? Kettle, Kettle drums? Kettle. Tiffany's, thank you. Maybe in some cultures you get the Tiffany's out. Forget about pianos. Sorry. But on the other side, on the other side, over here, oh, you know the grand instrument of all instruments says. Yeah, says who? Says who? Where did that come from? Where did that come from? Oh, let's just call it Canterbury. Or those environs around it. You see, and we're going to say, yeah, it could be. Could be the organ is the thing to do for people who associate the organ with coronation. And why we need the nose flutes? The what? The nose flutes. Oh, the nose flute. There you go. So we need to do the nose flute maybe somewhere. I don't know. But we got to be careful. we got to be careful. And we're going to direct. We're not going to regulate, but we're going to direct the use of forms in order that they truly do they truly are the best choice for the intent of that movement and worship. But that's an example of the regular principle. On the one hand, the regular principle restrains what a church can do in its worship as pertaining to its elements, the Word. But on the other hand, it's going to extend what we can do in worship insofar as we distinguish between the, the geopolitical, the, geo, uh, you know, the social, whatever, the cultural context and how that would be then experienced in its fullness in that context. We're not going to buy in, and I know there's some big controversy. If it, it's a false and erroneous argument to start talking about aesthetic uh, relativism here. This is not what we're talking about. We're talking about for redemptive purposes, how did these people experience 
the gospel in the most full way possible? What would, what would it be for them to pray in their own language? What would it be for them to experience the shepherding love of Christ in their own style? And on it goes. And that's the basis, of course, of contextualization. Yes, it can go too far. I can go to, and, and, that, and the reason it goes too far is we lose A. The reason why it doesn't go far enough is because we lose B. And that's why when I read this article, I went, this man, I don't know if he did the, I think he probably did do the biblical historical, the redemptive, the redemptive historical groundwork that you'll see in this thing in a minute. Because I, because of his previous ecclesiology, he, he kind of does it. But it's brilliant that he would decide those two is what I'm trying to help you see why that I'm trying to help you see why that was such a unbelievable analysis of the preliminary things, and that's really what we're going to do here. Um, and so, with that being said, um, let's just look at a few things before we we notice a few things about clowning. First of all. Um, this idea of the regulative principle. That's his principle number one. Um, read, let's read it again uh, over there on page three. Would someone read? Uh, there, there's basically two arguments for this idea of regulating. Read it in 1 6 A. It's right at the top, three. The whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory. Man's salvation, faith, and life is either expressly set down in Scripture or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from Scripture, unto which nothing at any time is to be added, whether by new revelations of the Spirit or traditions of men. So clearly coming out of the exclusive lordship of Jesus Christ, we're going to give him exclusive lordship as to what we believe, what we do. And that lordship, the reason, whenever I do the seminar on, on scripture, I always want, always make the point that I believe it was, uh, um, well, it doesn't matter. Uh, the lordship of Christ is always at stake in hermeneutics. That's what you're dealing with here is how is it that God can speak to us definitively? The moment you have any kind of hermeneutic that leads you to a point where nobody can really understand Scripture, it's just a matter of one's own personal opinion, you lost. You lost lordship. There has got to be, from Scripture, a means of reading it wherein we have every expectation to hear, thus saith the Lord. Now that really goes against this trend today where people don't want churches to exercise authority with that kind of language. We would prefer to hear, well, you know, I think the scripture means that. I mean, they would, they would really, you know, it'd be really fine if Craig and I were just, you know, it's my opinion that the scripture says it. It's my opinion that. It's my opinion that. You know, and we would go off on all this stuff, right? And, and yeah, I mean, there's sometimes we need to say that maybe because we're still working through it and we don't see it as a vital or whatever. But, but, but there's got to be a boldness enough for the church to have worked hard enough to say, thus saith the Lord. This is a rule of faith. This is a rule of practice. And the church needs to be very careful before it says it. And that's basically what we say when we ask, 
when we when we engage the issue of subscription. That is, what is it we believe that, that the Scripture, we can say as a church, that the Scripture principally says, thus saith the Lord. And we call that the Westminster Confession of Faith. Which is why even then, there's the opportunity for a constant dialogue of, 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 of scruples, we call it, or, or exceptions. There's a wonderful little addendum that you have in this 30-page handout by David Gordon that really gets at the looks at the issue of the regular principle as it applies to a particular officer of the church who subscribes to if you're an elder or a pastor you're going to be you're going to take a vow and say I can't they, we always believe scripture blank the Westminster and blank the thing I can't remember the specific do you remember it come on Ordnan subscribe what may, it may be subscribe yeah it could be or we receive but then we receive Boko I know that um, but the other ones I not believe it belief is a confessional thing you know we subscribe to it or something um, and there's room there to say but you know this particular issue I have issue with I can't honestly in my heart say I believe this and then the church has to rule as to whether or not that is a, a exception that gets to the, the vital of that of that, ch- of that article of faith, that that particular is this something that says, "Hold it, uh, are you dealing with a nuance here? Are you doing with? I mean, did it? You know, are you making the point that maybe the Westminster went a little too far, and, and, or are you just taking exception to the article of faith itself, in effect, by doing this? And that's the delay, and you'll see that. But basically, that's what that's talking about. Okay, the argument from charity. Read, this is to me the one that gets lost the most. So most people would say, of course, Christ alone can be Lord of conscience, uh, Lord of the church. But now the charity argument, which constantly gets locked, the regular principle is important both for the sake of preserving the exclusivity of Christ's authority over the church and for the sake of Christian charity insofar as preserving Christian liberty of conscience. For instance, the regular principle as articulated in the WCFF chapter 1, section 6, is specifically applied to the freedom of Christian conscience in chapter 20. Notice the same language here. Now, notice, I'm not going to read all of chapter 20, verse 1, but this is under the section called the liberty, uh, Christian liberty. And it starts off, the liberty which Christ hath purchased for believers under the gospel consists in their freedom from the guilt of sin, from the condemnation of wrath, the curse of the moral law, and on he goes. These are major things. This is what we talk about the good news of the gospel all about, right? And as one of those good news tenets is section 2. Someone read it for us. God alone is Lord of the conscience, and hath left it free from the doctrines and commandments of men, which are in anything contrary to his word, or beside it, if matters of faith or worship, so that to believe such doctrines, or to obey such commands out of conscience, is to betray true liberty of conscience, and the requiring of an implicit faith, and an absolute and blind obedience, is to destroy liberty of conscience and reason also. By the way, this is one of the reasons why we, in this tradition, as much as I approve and appreciate, there's a growing movement, I think, of the URC particularly, and and some of my best friends are in the URC, United Reformed Church, which is an offshoot of the CRC, Dutch Reform. Um, But those sorts of traditions have, what what they do on the, on the, Liberal liberty side, I guess you could say, is they will they have they have adopted several forms of unity, not just one. We have adopted one, Westminster. They have several. 
Okay, Heidelberg is the main one, but others. And on the other hand, though, for you to become a member of a church, you must subscribe to it. Now, why do you think from this chapter I have an issue? Uh, we we have an issue with that in the PCA. What are we afraid might happen? You are a brand new Christian. The flesh issue. Okay, oh, that that could be one, but you're dealing with more the form it's written in. What were you going to say? Good, absolutely bound to we're, we're We're concerned. Here's a person who has every right by birth of all the means of God's grace. By birth. What kind of birth am I talking about? Rebirth. Has all the rights and privileges to the full means of grace. The, the watchful care of the church. Baptism. Lord's Supper. Christian marriage. You know, that's why I don't do non-Christian marriage. The church, you know, only a Christian has right to a Christian marriage. Every, everybody has right to marriage. It's a common grace institution as well. And the state has given us the ability to be a justice of peace if we want to be. I just don't have time for it. But, but, but as a church, it's not the church to decide. The only time a church can, can uh, what's the word, um, not... Marry someone who's in good, someone in you know, who's in good standing with the church, is if they see a biblical, by good and necessary inference, reason why this marriage is not biblical. There's something about it inherently wrong. So you'll see, you know, so so on the one hand, that's 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 an example. They, every Christian, has the rights to all the privileges of Christ, whether they're baby Christians or whether they're mature Christians. And it gets to this very issue. So therefore, we do not require baby Christians to have a mature theology. Yeah? It seems to also exclude... I mean, it would be saying like the Baptist can't be a, part of it, can't be a member of the church either. So it seems to a confessional be, Baptist, yeah. Yeah, a confessional Baptist, if that's the standard. So it right. seems to be limiting... If the local church is meant to be a local embassy of the kingdom. Right. It's, it's not. It's an embassy of just a part of it. That's right. So we so that's a good point. And so Baptists might not be able to be a practicing Baptist here in some of those particulars. Right. We're not going to become a Baptist church for that. But on the other hand, we're going to say if you can make your peace with the fact that we believe this stuff, and how many times have you heard me say that if you came through a membership here? You remember it? I say it almost every time I meet with someone. We are not here requiring that you believe all this stuff. What you need to require, what you're going to need to believe, is enough to authentically say the five vows. You're going to have you're going to have enough to where those five vows are acts truly of confession. You can say yes, I believe. And there's nothing in those five vows that make you a Baptist or a Presbyterian. I think Clowney has a good line. He says something about the authority of the church. When we talk about excommunication, you're not excommunicating them to be a Baptist or to be a yeah. Lutheran. You're excommunicating them unto Satan. That's right. Good point. So you see what, what's going on here. Freedom of conscience, that's an example. So that's one example of, of requiring subscription, total subscription of an unbeliever before they have access to the church. There are many other examples, though, of course, where, where liberty of conscience, we're gonna, that's what a lot of this whole study is going to be in mining later when weak and strong and all that stuff. Um, so God alone is the Lord of the contrary, uh, conscience. We did read it, right? Did we read it? I'm losing my head. 
Um, if you want some further reflection on that, um, again, I give you a little piece by David Gordon, the regulative principle argument from charity. And what he's going to talk about is whether it's in worship, whether it's in all these different contexts, and he's going to allude to this passage that we're going to look at later in Romans 14. Um, and he's going to allude to the, the very paper that I had you read, Murray. But he's basically going to make, you know, for the sake of love, the church has got to start limiting itself. It's got to be as concerned to limit itself as to extend itself. And, and so that's what's very interesting here. Um, so what I want to do next is, is any questions about that? We're going to, this is going to be one of these, we're spiraling, guys. We're going to come back to this deeper, deeper, deeper before this is over. But did, you getting the concept basically? Very basic? You with me? Anything? Question? Questions are good. All right. Where does this come from biblically? Well, it really gets the essence of our redemptive history and our biblical theology. Um, what we're going to say is that there was never a time, again, in all redemptive history where the gospel was not mediated through a covenant. What is a covenant? A covenant is a, is, is a, is a rule of faith and practice. It's, it's, it's a, that's what it is. It's a canon. It's these are the terms. Here's how you're saved. Here's how you're not saved. Here's your duties related to that salvation. Here's not your duties related to that salvation. There's a covenantal contract. It's a the best word I can use in modern, though it gets really wooden and not very fuzzy right now, but it's basically a contract. So just think it's a contract, yet a very gracious and redemptive contract to be sure. Yeah. I do have a question about the previous part, the 20.2. So you use the Westminster as an example of a doctrine that we don't uh, make new believers... An example of a creed, yeah, a a creed. But Okay, so I guess what I'm wondering is, uh, free from doctrine, it seems to say doctrines and commandments of men that are contrary to his word, and we would say in general Westminster is not contrary to the word, right? Or beside it. Or... It says, or beside it. So I guess we would say the Westminster is beside the word. No. We describe it? No. So I Westminster I'm... itself is going to say, that it, it, we're talking about beliefs here, not... not it, the West, well, yes and no, to try to get your answer. If you read on through that chapter 1, it's going to clearly tell you, whenever there's a controversy of religion, whenever there's a contrary to what it is that we believe, this is about confession here, not about a form of confession like Westminster. So when there's a controversy about your uh, per, uh, our, what, what should be our confession as Christians, our confession says, don't come to us. Go to the Word. Go to the Word. Not oh, fundamentally. So I guess what I'm saying here, though, is I'm trying to uh, understand... The use of a creed. Is the Westminster what they're describing here? Because it talks about either doctrines that are contrary or beside it. So when would we ever... It, it seems like those two doctrines we would never want... To believe being a baby or not yeah. a baby, you don't want to believe in a doctrine that's uh, contrary or no. beside the word, right? Well, but you're, you're you, yeah, you're confusing. I want, I do not want to believe. That's why I keep. Do you see what I keep wrestling with? You, if you mean by doctrine, if you don't want to believe in a doctrine contrary or beside the word, that's exactly what our confession is saying. You should not want to believe in a doctrine. Westminster isn't a doctrine. Westminster is a creed. Okay, I guess because in this we use Westminster as the example of not of this. Well, l- listen to me. So what I'm yeah, obedience. It's not. It's what your Westminster is a consensus on the part of the church as to what the doctrine is. 
that is not at the level of believing in it. That's at the level of, 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 of God using His church to teach, instruct, and come up with a summary of what it is we believe the Scriptures teach in order for us to make decisions. So let me try to work it out very practically for you. Somebody walks in and says, uh, I, 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 I'm going to go and, and um, let's see, I'm going I'm to drink. Okay. Um, well, let me try to come up with a better one. Um, yeah, because we really like drinking. I don't <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, well, don't get drunk. Um, so, uh, try to, what? You have one? Who to vote for? Whatever. Yeah. So the so let's just say who to vote for? Drink whatever it is. Blind, 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 blind. By the way, I, I was going to share this to the end. I'm just dying to get it to. Did y'all notice at the very beginning I intentionally said shit? How many people notice that? Yeah. Kind of got you, didn't? You? Well, I, I was I, I wanted to say that very intensely because I'm going to draw it back when we get to the weak and the strong. But but here's an example. Did I sin? Can you as a church tell me you shouldn't say shit? So I can go shit, 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 well, shit all I want. Oh, good. So you see, this is an example. Now, what I would do is I would say, okay, we go to the set. So now somebody's brought me up to charges and said, our pastor periodically he just gets a little carried away and he, he says bad words. Okay? And I would say that every single time it's probably as intentional as I can possibly be when I do it, just for you to know. And it's precisely sometimes to rock your boat about the regular principle so that we set you free from everybody judging you. And that's why I did it just then. I did it very intentionally. Now, you could say it's wrong. Really? Based on what? Based on what? Where, where is cussing wrong? And then you would feel uneasy about it, right? You'd say, and then you, you're right. Well, is, was it in love? Can I say that word in love? Yeah. I think you can, maybe, if you have a purpose for it that's redemptive and loving. Reconciled. Reconciling. Can you say it in hate? You sure can. And that would be sin. But now you're going back to this issue of a constitution. So now there's a big debate. And the church says, well, guy, is this a rule of faith and practice that you can't say shit? I may be rubbing your cultural sensibilities all over the place here. My mommy told me not to say that horrible word. Heck, my mommy told me not to say crap either, and that comes out all the time. I don't know why. No, I mean, I'm not making shallow of what I know was offensive to some of you. It was offensive to some of you. I suspect. Maybe not. Probably with my wife. She probably didn't like what I said. I don't know. Well, that's true. That's that's why I can pick on her. I knew there was some consensus going on here. But the question is, am I loving you by being a pietist where where, where Scripture isn't pietist? Am I loving you as your pastor where I don't do some things like that to help you quit beating each other up in your hearts and your minds? Now, maybe, maybe not. You could say bad judgment, Pastor. Okay, that's, that's that's, that's an honest discussion. I could have that. But it's a very different thing. Let me go back to your point. The script, where we go to the confession, and we can say, look, this is what we as a church has determined from Scripture is the doctrine of Scripture. 
We're simply proclaiming. It's declarative. That's it. We didn't make a law here. The doctrine comes from the Bible. The interpretation of the doctrine comes from the creed, and we have a consensus as to what we are willing ourselves to abide by in that interpretation. And why do we do that? I mean, let's get to the basics here. Because I, I don't think any of you come to this church hoping that Preston Graham is going to be the, in, the, 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 the Pope of interpretation. You're coming to a church to interpret the Scripture. And the way the church interprets the Scripture is by forming a consensus called creeds. And those creeds are used now to, dis, to discern what is the, the consensus of this, this church as to what the Scriptures principally teach. And if there's any controversy... Then and it goes beyond what is envisioned by the uh, the our consensus. The church has no right to rule because the church doesn't rule in itself. Preston doesn't make the rules. The session doesn't make the rules. God makes the rules, but the session doesn't even interpret the rules by itself. We interpret the rules with our consensus of a church called the session, called the creed. So now you'd come to a place, and there's absolutely, I don't think, anywhere, maybe I'm wrong, but I can't imagine any place in all of our creed where it will say, thus saith the Lord, don't say shit. <laughs> and even to the spirit of that. But I think you could say, don't, don't do anything that's hateful, don't do anything that's, you know, do everything in love. And you could try to say in this context, it was a bad judgment of what love and hate is, maybe. You could say a lot of things, in our, but you couldn't then... You know, come to me and and shame me, as I heard happen one recently. Not about this. So, am I making it clear? This is not the doctrine. The Westminster is not doctrine. Got it. So, if it's not a doctrine, it's merely a proclamation of the word, and that word is the doctrine. And we are, as new members, saying in those five vows that you're submitting essentially to the word. You know, why? That's right. We, why couldn't we, therefore, like? the Dutch or whatever, the Reformed Church, say, do you submit to the Westminster as... No, that's not what we're saying, submit. We're saying, do you believe? So why couldn't we say, do you believe? Because they don't believe it. Let me put it this way. If they can't believe those five vows, they shouldn't join the church. We don't think they're Christians yet. That, to me, I think is a helpful distinction. We would say, you can become... If you're an Arminian, you're welcome to join our church if you can say those five vows. We want to make sure yeah. that you believe Ephesians 1. We don't want to make sure that you understand the doctrine of election in Westminster. Right. Yeah. yeah. Is that right? Right. So those vows are what we are saying. It's our consensus that if you're a Christian, if you're a for real Christian, you've got to be able to say this. These are things you've got to be able to say out of good conscience, in other words. If you can say, well, I just can't, you know, I have an exception to, the, to this second vow about sin. I, I don't know. I, I think that's a little harsh. We're going to say, well, bro, we love you, man. Keep hanging around, but you're not ready. Or submitting to the government of the church. If you say to us that you don't believe, and if you can't with the apostolic church say, I can, you can't say, I believe in the one holy Catholic church, we're going to say, I don't think you're a Christian yet. I think these are just key guiding principles that we will see fleshed out more and more as you guys discuss. Um, so you may... The way that we got, had Bannerman described as this sort of meditative going down and down, that, that we're doing that in many ways. This is hopefully going to clarify and deepen what we understand. Um, so this is taken from something you didn't read, this first paragraph. Let me just read it. We're going to try to parse. I like reading Bannerman because it's very clear. Okay, maybe I should say I like reading Bannerman. But I kind of do like, I'm sorry. It's very clear and systematic. He builds and builds and builds and builds and builds. 
Okay. Um, so this is from his, his introduction where basically he says Christianity is nonsensical without the church. It doesn't even make sense. If you read scripture, Old and New Testaments, um, it doesn't make sense not to have a church. So what does he mean by that? The society of Christians is not an accidental or voluntary union which has grown up of itself. It is a union designed beforehand, appointed from the beginning by God, and plainly contemplated and required in every page of the New Testament. There are precepts in the Bible, not to believers separately, but to believers associated together into a corporate society. Meaning there's precepts that don't even apply to you as an individual, in that sense. They only apply to you corporately. They only apply to the church. Um, There are duties that are enjoined upon the body and not upon the members of which it is composed. It doesn't say to individuals, cast that member out to Satan. It says to the church. There are powers assigned to the community to which individuals of the community are strangers. There's a government, an order, a code of laws, a system of ordinances, and officers described in Scripture which can apply to none other than a collective association of Christians. Without the existence of a church or a body of believers, as contradistinguished from believers individually, very much of what is contained in the Bible would be unintelligible and without practical application. So a lot of our discussion is going to be understanding how is this true, and in what sense is this true. Um, But basically, either explicitly or implicitly, if you read the scriptures, it doesn't make any sense without a church. All right. These, these first two parts, church as a divine institution, church as a spiritual institution. We want to understand what those mean. And you're going to put some meat on them in the discussion. Basically, just take those terms very literally. Divine institution. All it means is that God instituted it. Okay? Christ's appointment. We read some of this earlier. Um, and I'm just going to blow through this, all right? So, so just listen. you can listen to me. You like to hear my voice, right? Right. Every believer is joined by faith. <laughs> Every believer is joined by faith to one another by virtue of the faith itself. In becoming one with Christ, he becomes at the same time, in a certain sense, one with all who are Christ's. Public profession is not one of choice but of obligation and command from God. The very entrance into life is through a public testimony. You can't say, I want to be a Christian, but I don't want to proclaim it publicly. Those are mutually exclusive. They're contradictory. A solitary Christian is seen to be a contradiction in terms. Contrary to seeing the church merely as voluntary and humanly devised, there is a positive institution of a society by Christ himself. So this, this is setting the bar high insofar as we're saying this, this is not just a bunch of people who have come together throughout church history and thought this is going to be a good way for us to worship God. The claim is that God actually intended, instituted it, commanded it. Okay? So the church is a divine institution. We're going to see more of what that means. It's also a spiritual institution. Spiritual meaning having to do with the Holy Spirit, not spiritual meaning 
ooey gooey feely stuff, but having to do with the Holy Spirit. Um, the Spirit works upon the soul through the outward uses of the Word, water, and Lord's Supper, which are only sensible signs of themselves, but the avenue the Spirit uses. There is no power in the outward signs themselves. So this was mentioned earlier, the difference between the agent of grace and the means of grace. So sacerdotalism apparently is a word we, we were talking about a minute ago. Sacerdotalism is going to confuse that. It's going to say uh, the church becomes, or the sacraments themselves, or the things, the, the material things themselves, or the humans involved themselves, become the agent of grace. But it's always only the means. Only Think of tools. Think of only the, the thing in the hand of God, in the Spirit of God, that's being used. Okay? You can think of, maybe this is your prayer, right? You want to be used by God. We want, to, we want to pray that the preacher is being used by God, or the bread and wine are being used by God, right? or the water in baptism. Um, and so it also guards the freedom of conscience and the civil liberty of the state. There's a, there's a distinction there. Okay, um, so keep, keep these in mind throughout your discussion, and how, not only is this an introduction to the basic principles, this is also sort of the goal. We want to come back to this and see how this is still true, and what that means, all right? So now we're going to break up into your tables and just walk through each section. So if you turn over, well, do, does anybody want to ha- interact with that so far, the first page, before you guys discuss in small groups? Any questions or anything? Could you just clarify how the spiritual institution regards the civil liberty of the state? Um, it doesn't... The civil liberty of the state has a certain jurisdiction, and the church has a certain jurisdiction, and they don't overlap in a sense. There's going to be a whole section on it in your thing later that will be very directed to that question, just so you know. Yeah. But spiritual institution, meaning not physical institution, not temporal, not that doesn't mean it has doesn't have to do with physical things. But insofar as its power goes, now, we're, I prefer we're, the terms. Those are old terms. But I yeah. prefer the terms redemptive, yeah, versus uh, uh, prevenient or, or common. Common. Call it. I was, there's a word there I'm missing, but you'll get it in a minute. Yeah. The, if you if you want to jump, um, yeah, that's all right. We'll we'll come back to it when we get to the limits. All right. So so now just just walk through the the handout together in your discussions. The main, session, the main sections are, where does the power come from? So the source, we already know who the source is going to be, but we're just unpacking that more. The source is Christ. Then, what sort of power is it? This is going to be really the spiritual, the nature of church power. And then, the extent and limits. That's going to be a major, major um, section. How far can it go? How far should it go? Okay. Um, and, and all we wanted to do is, is walk through this handout together in your small groups, help each other um, understand it. And I do have some questions there under GD, group discussions. Um, and so we'll come back. What time? Is, so we have... To, we'll just see how it goes. Yeah, um, 45 minutes at least. Okay. I mean, probably at least about 10 minutes each section, I would say. Um but we can see how it's going. All right, any questions? I'm going to 
try to go through each section and to hit what I want to make sure you guys get and then get any questions or special input, a special practical um, place where it comes down uh, that you guys talked about. So, source of church power, page two, um, where it comes from. This, this probably wasn't a mystery. It comes from God. It comes from Christ. The, the main uh, thing that it's not, I think a lot of us assume that it is, is this sort of delegated, it comes from within, based on people voluntarily joining. Um, it's private. It's like joining the YCA. Um, you can be in, you can be out. It's, it's a great addendum to your faith. Um, and we're going to say no. It's, it, it's much more than that. Um, it's not... Yeah, it's, it's appointed by, by Christ, and we see all the different examples of how that is true. And then the second sort of main heading is that it's not just he's the source and then he sits back and lets the church do, do its thing. It's that Christ is continually present in, with, and through the church, as we would say. So that, there's a great quote there uh, from Bannerman, uh, not in the church itself. It's not the church that governs and dispenses ordinances and spiritual graces in his name and by reason of his original gift and endowment to her, but Christ, who personally present, governs and administers ordinances and blessings through the church. The church has no store of life apart from Christ being in it. So again, you see, it's not sacerdotal. It's not, it's not say, uh, uh, Catholic. And it's also not Anabaptist in saying the church doesn't do anything. The church is just voluntary and you just sort of come together and this is the best, most pragmatic way to be a Christian in this setting. It's it's neither of those two. It's Christ through the church is doing it. And he is he is authorized. This this is a big key key way to understand mm-hmm. the means. He's authorized the church to do certain things. He's authorized the church to baptize. He's authorized the church to preach, to administer sacraments and to have the keys of the kingdom, say who's in and who's out. Okay? There are probably innumerable other pragmatically grounded things we could be doing that are not authorized. Which we could do, you wouldn't do it with authority. You wouldn't do it under Christ's authority with his authorization. And you'd have no confidence that Christ should show up in it. Yeah. That's the key. When he authorizes, he promises to be there. So when we come on Sunday, we can trust his promise. We can expect him to be there. Um, anybody want to jump in? Something that came up in your discussion for this section? <coughs> Question. It's just all so clear and perfectly described, right? <clears throat> Not that it's because uh, I'm kind of new at, at this, even though I'm you know, over the hill. The, the mediating aspect. Not yes. talked about very much outside. I, I've been a Christian thirty some odd years, yeah. been in ministry in and out for you know twenty of those, yeah. and that word is rarely brought up. Yeah. I have really appreciated that word, uh-huh. you know, in our context. Right. You know, right. that, that, that we are mediating as a, as a as a. I don't even like to use the word group, right. but as church, it's right. a unique thing. Right. It also brings, just when you were saying that too, it makes me think of being sent as an ambassador. And you little are... Embassies. You are authorized. Yeah, and little em- the church is little embassies of heaven. You're authorized by heaven to go do certain things. And Paul, in 2 Corinthians, talks about being the ambassador of Christ. The ambassador in chains. 
But you're not just going to show up in Sierra Leone and say, hey, hey guys, I, I represent the U.S. This is what the U.S. thinks. Reese? I think one of the things that we talked about uh, with the first section in relation to being a solitary Christian is, um, okay, so we get maybe one person, but can it goes into the parachurch or the uh, non-church, but group of believers getting together. Mm-hmm. So what is the extent of, um, of you know, communal belief that is, then is in line with the Bible, but short of church power. And so then we just we did talk about the prophet, priest, and king, and the mm-hmm. five points, and that that you know that ultimately all of that is biblical, and you don't get there through parachurch, through coffee shop, or through individual mm-hmm. worship. Mm-hmm. That it requires uh, those you know biblical tenets in order for it to uh, in order to fully experience. Uh, Absolutely. And that's a perfect bridge to the next section. So that the, that's, I think, what those next sections are. Yeah, if I could right. just make a yeah. quick comment of that. I've wrestled this issue, obviously, in all my ministerial life, being a parachurch guy for almost seven or eight years. Um, you know, the most gracious way I know to say it, but it's also true, although it might not be perceived as grace, is at best, at best, depending on what the dynamics of that ministry is, the, church, the parachurch is a, uh incomplete church. <laughs> It's, a, it's not that we're going to dismiss insofar as the word is being proclaimed rightly and faithfully. Well, we, we do believe the presence of Christ can work through that. It's just, it's not complete. It doesn't have a complete, it's like a table with missing a leg maybe. Or it's got the leg, but it's not a leg that's been defined carefully by apostolic constitution. So it's, it's at best, what David used to call it, it's a regular or we can say incomplete, or there's language like that. But, it's, but the point I'm making is we don't dismiss that God is working and, and there is a means of grace acting through the parachurch ministry potentially. And we acknowledge that meeting with other Christians in a coffee shop, that, yeah. that the right. God can be in. You know, yeah, we wouldn't that. try to call that a church. That's just communion of the saints. Yeah. And, it, and it falls more under advice. They can get advice from a lot of different places. Yeah. Right, but you're not going to trust it as it's not authorized. It's not been under. Yeah, good. Do we? um, There was a comment recently when we were talking about this about about that Christ promises to to be here to be with with us Mm. when when it has certain characteristics that are prescribed. So, is that does that mean worship? Or is anything that's Christ Presbyterian Church? Any programming that happens? No, it's only those things that fall under what have actually been authorized. So that's why earlier we said you don't we can't bind you to go to Sunday school. <coughs> right? Yeah, so because I because we did talk about that. So in that sense then is that um... Well, I would say yes and no. Yeah. Insofar as Sunday school is a ministry of the word. And Calvin once said if I could do communion every day I would. There's one time a day when, when I'm talking a week where we know it is, it is not exceptional. We must do it. But there are many other days where you could do it. And insofar as it's a means of grace, it would be effect, efficacious. So the more sacrament, he argued, and this is a good example because it seems like the last thing we'd be thinking about doing every day. But he said the more sacrament, the better. Because it's a means of grace. So it is. God has authorized the ministry of sacraments. But there are conditions to what a sacrament, what makes a sacrament sacramental. And one of those is that it's under the oversight and discipline of the church, for instance. So if you're doing communion in your home, we're not doing sacrament at all. But if your church decides to have a sacramental service every day of the week, 
And that would come with all the marks of the sacramental service, word, sacrament, discipline, those three marks, gospel center, missional. Then you would do well to go to every one of them, if you could. So my, my question would be, you're, you don't have to go to Sunday school. What idiot wouldn't if you're hungry for the Word of God? No, I say that facetiously. Of course, there are reasons not to. But it's like, why wouldn't you? I'm getting your attention, aren't I? I'm getting your attention. And also, Sunday school falls under the authority of the ministry of the Word. Well, and what idiot wouldn't, you know, do a lot of stuff that we talk about like that. Communion of the saints and community. Now, again, there are all other reasons why we can't do it. So you're not being an idiot, if you know what I'm saying. But all things being equal, why wouldn't I? Because God has authorized, which means He's promised that these church-sanctioned events carry with them a means of grace. And you never know what you're going to receive from God in a Sunday school class that will be the nugget of truth that gets you through a severe situation in your life or gives you wisdom as to what to tell your children or on and on it goes. So it's kind of like crazy, you know? Why wouldn't you? But, but it's, not, it's not required. I thought I saw another hand. No? Is there another hand? No? All right, let's go to the uh, nature of church power. What sort of power is it? Uh, it's spiritual power. It's not. It doesn't have. We don't have power over the temporal conditions of all men, uh, is the way he puts it. This is where you see what does that look like. Uh, it looks like word, sacrament, discipline, uh, the three marks. If it's helpful, uh, if you think of the three marks, word, sacrament, discipline, they come through as prophet, priest, king. How is, how is Christ active now through the church? Prophet, priest, king map perfectly. I wish I was going to draw it, but they map perfectly onto word, sacrament, communal, and gospel-centered missional. It just comes through all of those. Um, the nature, what he means by nature is um, it only goes so far as spiritual authority goes. So... That if you turn over, um, this just helps us understand it better. If you go to page four, we're under the limits, limits of church power. It's spiritual puts a limit on it. So when we when we preach, when when we are declaring things as a church, that's all we're doing. We are declaring the word of God. We're not enacting new laws. Uh, they merely explain, apply, and declare the laws that Christ has already revealed. The Word of God alone has powers of legislation, enacting laws. The powers are also only ministerial and subordinate. They're derived from Christ. Carrying out the will of Christ, they're not acting out on their own. So one, of the, one way that I think of the limits is um, the limit of the keys of the kingdom is to declare who, as far as the church can tell, who is in Christ and who is outside of Christ. Now, if the church has made a declaration to someone, as far as we can tell, man, you're, you're outside of Christ. You've been excommunicated. And they come Sunday morning and they walk up to take communion. We will give it to it because we don't, because we don't want to uh, uh, use the sort of temporal power. We don't have temporal power to sort of wrestle them away from the table. Does that make sense? We've done as far as the authority can take us. The, church, the church's power goes as far as spiritual authority goes, which is to declare this is what's true. So even though you may be cursing them by giving them the sacraments if they are indeed outside of Christ, 
What is it to excommunicate? You just answered it. If you say an excommunicated person, you would get to see You declare to them that you are not lawfully a uh, participant in this communion meal. And they can say, I disagree. And we'd say, do so at your own. Well, it, it uh, yeah, the loving part. I just think it's it's important to declare. And he's saying that's all we've got. We not, it, it falls in the same sort of categorical area of a non-Christian listen to a sermon. Right? They, they are hearing the word declared. They're hearing this call to repent and believe, but they're hearing it as it judges them. You can't force them to You can't force them to, to believe. So the authority is spiritual. You can't force them to do anything. So that's different than the state's power, which is back, sort of back to Chris's question. The state has all sorts of power to use by the sword. You can, they can force people to do all sorts of things. These two words, by the way, will come down all through your confessional literature, like Book of Church Order, Westminster. Um, this, these two distinctions, I, very rarely will you go through an ordination where this question isn't asked. Uh, what is the nature of church power? And your answer is declarative and ministerial. Uh, so it shows you how important and foundational this point is. And it's also important that it's not... We're not coming up with new laws. So if you think of the, the three branches of government in the U.S., it's not legislative. Yeah. Right? The Word of God is legislative, and that's final. Uh, the declarative is, is really comes closer to the judicial, where you're, you're making mm-hmm. judgments. That's why it's called a court. Yeah. We call so the session is a church court. Presbyterian is a church court. Making judgments on, okay, in the name of Christ, according to his law, this is what's true. And that is, is this being bad on earth? Is that... What is that? We are mediating on earth what is in heaven. That's right. That's right. Exactly. We're declaring, what, as far as we can tell, this is what's true in heaven. We're declaring it on earth. Exactly. As an ambassador. Yep. So we're going to regulate it as well as we can. Think regulative principle is regulating as well as we can what is true in heaven. What is true according to Christ who is in heaven. And that is going to be mediated on earth. Multiform. Is it in that order? What is in heaven is on earth, or is it defining? Well, the prayer is we pray, we pray for your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So it's already true in heaven. Yeah. And we're even told that we're already in heaven by faith. We are united to Christ in heaven. What you bind on earth is bound in heaven. Right. What is it? That's that's it. I'm not sure I understand your question. It seems like what happens on earth causes it to happen in heaven. Is that what you're saying? I think. I don't know if it's just a language. No, I guess it's, it's, it's not. Mean, mediatorial is really what you want, the word you want to keep going back to because the idea of it causes in heaven is sacerdotalism. Right. The mediation is the idea that it's, think of that priestly standing in the gap, you know, and there's this side and there's this side, and you're mediating between the two in, those, in this transaction. So that's important. Does that help? Uh, oh, you were trying to correct, but yeah, that's you. That's right. You put a lot of emphasis on binding and loosing, describing that as a significant power. Yeah, but it's a significant mediatorial power. That's right. It's still fallible. You don't have that. There is a chasm. Back to the old gospel navigators thing. If you ever saw it, you know, there's a chasm here. 
the church is in the middle of the chasm because the church is the body of Christ. We would usually say Christ is in the chasm, and he is. But how is Christ in his ascension ministry present? The church. So that's the the mediatorial. All right. um, We do have to move on. So uh, more on extent and limits. So if you were able to get to the section, you saw that a lot of times we fall either to those who overrate. We extend the church's power way too far beyond Scripture, or we do the opposite. We don't take it far enough. So that this is this is the key of how are we going to guard Christ's authority and Christ's grace? It's always meant to be gracious, to guard, speak where we can speak, not speak where we can't speak, um, and the under the extent. This is this is this is um, an important idea to, to grapple with: is what is the difference between advice and authority? And where can the church say they're given advice, and where can the church say they're given authority? Um, this obviously connects to uh, good and necessary inference. What can we see in Scripture is clear. Um, so, a Christian is called to submit to church power insofar as it is in agreement with the Word of God, and in a subordinate sense, because it is emitted by the church, which is itself instituted by God in His Word. Lest there be no power that is binding except for what the members otherwise consent to. So this, this issue on consent that he talked about, if you think of a judicial, uh, if you think of a judgment that is laid down by a judge, it's not dependent on whether the parties agree or not. That's why the person has authority. If someone is sentenced, it doesn't, they're not waiting for that person to consent to it. Right? In the same way, those things where we can, if we're clear on how far it goes, and we can say this, the church can say in, full, in good conscience this is true, it's not just advice. It's authority. It's not limited by consent. So consent can be limiting. As if we're waiting. See, Christ is the only way of salvation. Do you agree? That's not what we're saying. We're saying, come to Christ. He is the only way. Now you see why we, you have to be so careful of where that line is. Because the claim is that it's more than advice. Um, I mean, we are running out of time. So, so you see some dangers. Uh, if it is bound by consent, you know, there's all sorts of dangers. There's the other important thing to think about is there's always some authority that is going to be in charge of the church. So, if if you if you're a part of a church that says we don't believe in church government or church power or church authority. There's still going to be church authority. It's just going to be the majority, or it's just going to be the most charismatic person, or the head. Like there, there's, if it's voting, if you think of congregational church, the majority becomes the authority. Right. Whereas we want to make sure to guard that God's word is the authority. Lana? I think one of the things we could take for granted is an educated person would say, mm. and an educated congregation. Because if you're talking yeah, to us, yes, eldership. Just keep yes, going in there, yeah. You are talking to us and disciplining us and we're totally not mm, absolutely. the word. That's part of the wonderful blessing that we get here. Absolutely. The, the reformers were major in, in literacy, you know, movements. For a lot of ways. I appreciate that nice affirmation, but you know, if y'all hear a strident in me, I, I get—I'm really getting scared that it's watering down here and elsewhere. I really am. 
so I'll just be honest about that. I'm struggling. You know, that, there's a sense of, you know, it's not, don't take it for granted, I guess. It's hard. But I appreciate that. Yeah. All right. Anything else? Yeah, thank you. I guess this is just a side note. And I said I think it's coming largely from the new culture. Is it is that we're not bound by the culture of the church, and and so I think this new generation wants something more, and they want to be discipled as opposed to do church. People just don't want to do church, do church culture anymore. But I think their influence or the influence that we live in is also affecting what you're saying about you know women from they're in their fifties. So that the nice thing about it is that you know. The purpose is always reconciliation to God. So it's like, so as the church, we're going to follow all these points, but yet we're going to see how can we do it better. Right. So church right. culture won't be our rule. Right. Um, as opposed to maybe what you think of in the South or in the 50s, but right. that we'll continue to, to seek to, to do that, which is, I think, good. Yeah, absolutely. Craig and I talked at length about it, and we... I'm wondering if we chose. I chose the right tack. One, one was to sh- follow the grammar. What, what the three steps are? You know, that's kind of a spiraling, right? You, you do the grammar, you introduce it, then you do the uh, logic. logic, and then yeah. And that's what we decided to do. And you'll notice that's something of what Bannerman did. But um, but I realize in a group like this, to introduce the grammar, you're wanting quick. You're immediately wanting to go to the logic. <laughs> and uh, so anyway, we're at the actual final. Then that, that we did grammar first. Bannerman meant to get at the logic and help you really wrestle with the logic of it. And uh, I think, uh, I apologize for taking too long for that first one, but we did end up doing a lot of logic and um, whatever the next one is. Um, Rhetoric, thank you. But uh, anyway, what I want you to do is turn to page 7. You know, I do want to sort of make a little bit now. now, I was going to do it at the end, but I'll do it now. Uh, You know... You probably do sense in me a little stridency. And it's not against you personally, of course. Um, or I hope you know that. Um, we live in a generation. We live in a denomination, honestly, that is losing this stuff. That's losing the great advantage that we have uh, of, of, of reading Scripture with the church over, over 2,000 years. And it really is concerning to me. I'm getting at that stage of life where I'm going, man, this is really concerning to me. Um, that we have, you know, you mentioned the, the youth and the older and all that, and, and both have these, you know, I, I see such a beautiful thing happening in this church with our transgenerationalism, and I hope it's considered to be beautiful, and I hope it will continue. But, um, you know, though the, the one generation, no generation has, a, has sort of a, a, a corner on this stuff. And these, these are, what we're trying to do in this kind of a study is transcend generations, transcend cultures, transcend. What are those preliminary? I keep emphasizing that word preliminary. And there's such a there's such a, a, a tendency coming out of a familiarity with Christianity to make to treat all this to take this stuff for granted or to treat it casually, and to not realize what we are doing and what we are saying. You know, and so please, I hope you've heard me. I, I'm really, you know, it's interesting just to make a point. Um, so that was the first point I was going to make. The second point, uh, I forgot it, but the third point. I mean, Julie, you're, you're, you know, it's interesting, you know, the, the, this fun, and we're really, really, I was going to introduce it in the week in the poor at the end, but maybe I should wait. But, but you know, there is such an importance that we don't do knee-jerk when it comes to church polity and authority. 
and even in our communion one to another, that we don't. We don't assume anything about my immediate reaction. Immediate reactions, in my experience as a church governor, are rarely accurate. Rarely. Because my first reaction is going to come out of my culture. It's going to come out of my gender. It's going to come out of my class. It's going to come out of what feels that sociologists and knowledge, God, it was the best course I ever took under Peter Berger at BU. And, and distinguishing between what he calls the ideal and material uh, causes, and that gets me to this third point I was forgetting, that, that there is a materialization of idealism. There's an ideal. When we use the word doctrine, this is what I was trying. I was, I was trying to play around. You know, Plato distinguished between form and, and, and I was trying to remember the Aristotelian. I know the, the latter part is accidental in the first part. Does anyone remember that? The, he, 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 he could not. I took a whole course in uh, Aristotle back in the day. But, but, but I'm looking for some categories. But I guess there's no simple, you know, Kant, noumenal and phenomenal. But, but if you're looking for these, con- these categories, what we all are agreeing on is there is this ideal. That's what we mean by doctrine. It's this ideal. We believe the script that Christ is the personification. He is the person ideal. All truth, all practice, everything ideal became personalized in Jesus Christ as the second person of the Trinity. And is personalized, I should say, in Christ. The scripture is the only infallible interpretation of that ideal in Christ. And then we have to go to the work of confessing. What then do I, personally, I as a church, confess? That's why your state, your, your Westminster is called a confession of faith. And our only source of interpreting the ideal, so now we look, ideal, phenomenal. And then now we're trying to get at the phenomenal that's, 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 that's infallible from the fallible, from the fallible readers of that phenomenon. And that's the church. The pillar and bark of the truth, Paul says. And so it's so important like that to, to do that, as well as is, is when we realize that when we are judging things, and we all are doing it, judging things that people say and do, as church governors, no less than I would say all church members, to the degree that we can start thinking more deeply about this stuff, is the degree that we're going to have a, a more peace and purity church. And um, and I am. I'm very very concerned as I talk with you know as I've been very heavily invested now both the global and the local collaborative. We're engaging these guys. We're talking about stuff, and it's just phenomenal how how um, how little people know and and about this sort of what used to be common. I mean, this is all. And so to illustrate my point, if on page. Um, where did I tell you to go? Seven. Seven. Well, first of all, I'm just going to point out, okay, you know, if, if I hadn't had Kevin and if he hadn't done what he just did, which I'm glad he did, not we asked him to do it. Right. Craig, I mean, this is the stuff that, um, this is just for you to read, okay? What I did is I took Bannerman, you see that under the James Bannerman, and then I say summary conclusions, and here's some quotes for you. And he, he engaged them very well. I'm not going to go over them. I wasn't going to go over them. I just, it's in my old notes, so I'll put them in there. Um, and so what, what I hope you will do, here's my assignment to you if I say nothing else. I would like to ask you, while this conversation is hot, to take the time, ideally even with this weekend, but at least within a week, at least, but I'd say preferably this weekend, get you a cup of coffee or tea, 
or whatever you do. Probably not scotch. Get out of the scotch. Um, at least for this purpose. And, uh, and just start, take this handout that I gave you and just slowly walk through it. I think you have enough context now to where you're going to understand what you're reading. And just think. Just think. And we're going to, try, we're going to do a last little bit of thinking right now. And when you do that, this will be helpful just to say, oh, this is what Jane Bannerman said. And now I'm beginning to see what the significance of this was. But this is basic stuff. Now, to illustrate my point at how basic this is, I mean, you're all, you may be thinking, oh, wow, you know, this is, this is basic 101. So if you go back to the uh, page 9, I am now, listen to this, I am now quoting from the Book of Church Order, preface, section 2. We already read section 1. Preface. And you're going to start reading this, and if you look at those underlines, you're going to see this words, these, these words, these languages, these concepts, all through it. Things that you probably could have read if you were in elder training or if you were in church membership and you thought you wanted to read the book of church order, which is not what I'd typically say to go read at first. But if you did read it, if you've ever read it, you just kind of read it and it just kind of sounds like church speak and everything's just going hunky-dory and yeah, 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 yeah. I hope you begin to see that this document, man, this came out of serious ecclesial civil conflict 350 years ago where they were really parsing words carefully because they knew there were going to be real decisions made from that. And there's no less true today. We are as in much a spiritual warfare as they were. And when you look at these languages, you know, you look at this issue of, you know, uh, the preface section 2, God alone is the Lord of the... You know, he goes through this. He uses that word ministerial and declarative that you heard Bannerman talking about. Um, you, talk, you hear the word judiciatory, judiciary, um, judicatory. That's a very big. We're not a, we're not legislative. You see, that's why we call it judicatory, not legislative. Now you see the import of that word. Uh, you see words buying conscience, all this sort of stuff. And then when you look at, at chapter three of the form of government that's in our book of church order, when you start reading this stuff, you're going to go, "Whoa! This is re- every these are these are brief bulleted summations of a whole incredible stuff." that is grounded in redemptive history. How did we get all this stuff? That's why I tried to show you. We got it primarily from the Apostolic Foundation and as it brings the whole of Corpus of Scripture, Old and New Testament, to bear upon specific pastoral... You know, the Bible, your New Testament. It was not a theologian sitting down in a classroom writing theology. This was a pastor, evangelist, church planter, writing to congregations about real-time issues, real splits and schisms, real, you know, what, what do we do when, when we, we go into another culture, like Greek from Hebrew? What do we do when there is a church down here splitting over issues of, of how and how much of my former culture do I allow into my Christianity and how much do I discard? What are really the fundamentals of whatever else you believe, you've got to believe this stuff. And, and what does it mean to be an officer of a church who's going to make these kind of judgments? What are the qualifications? These are all written in, these are all situational. That's what I'm, the word I want you to get in your head. They're situational. That's where real confessional theology is written. Systematic is written elsewhere. Historical is written everywhere. Philosophical is written elsewhere. 
Confessional theology is situational theology. Theology written in, with, through, for the church and its activity and practice. And so it's so important to see this stuff and say, wow, that's amazing. Wow. And that's where it came from. Now, with that being said, it's, it's, it's difficult to try to... I've tried as best I know, and Craig's helped, to, to, to reduce... How can I help you with sort of pulling out of it the major categories? And in this last section, for 30 minutes, and we do end at 1230, um, I want to make sure that you have these categories in your head. And I'm going to give you a chance right now to help me think about where they apply very briefly. So first, if you've read all those, those prefaces, things I just quoted there on page 8 and 9, then you're going to find these... Four major, or three major sort of distinctions you've got to have in your head. Distinction number one is between the church acting jointly, distinguished from the church acting severally. You can read all of this, but the gist of that is there are certain things that the church does when it is the church qua church, the church ex cathedra, if you will, is one of the languages that was used. It's and and what would those could be like? It's when the church, it's whenever that session acting together, no individual has the ability to be joint, obviously. It's when the session, as governors acting on behalf as representatives of the church, make judgments and rulings with respect to what? Faith, government, and worship. Government, including worship, and worship. And when we do those things collectively because of the scripture's command to do it so, so it deals with you know matters of faith, worship, and, and discipline or government, and um, and it's very you know important because as a person, Preston, I wear different hats just like you do. It's I wear the hat of pastor, and I wear the hat as moderator of a session. As pastor, I'm acting severally under the authority of our of our of our polity and our constitution, etc., in terms of interpretation of the Bible. But but I'm acting severally. Versus when I'm moderator of a session, I'm acting in a judicatory manner with a session jointly. You see that? And is and, and if you notice that, what's the take home? Well the take home, again I'm just referring it is the 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 regular principle when it applies to the church acting jointly is nothing contrary to or beside what is by good and necessary. Boy, do you hear how many qualify? Nothing contrary to now, every Christian denomination agree that every Christian would say, of course, the session can't rule on something, make a decision on something that's contrary to the Word of God. Who would? That's, that's boring, of course. But what it's saying is no. For the sake of, the, of, of preserving the exclusive headship of Christ and the freedom of conscience, it can't even be beside it. And the rule of interpreting the scripture, this is a crucial rule, is good and necessary. Good is easy. Oh, that's a good, you know, should you buy, well, that, that's a good inference. I can see that. It, it, it can make sense, given your situation. Necessary inference? That's a much more restrictive word. Where you have to be very minimalistic in that regard. And so whereas we may say, that's a good inference, I may in severally, in my counsel, I may just do good. I may say, you know, in this situation, my advice to you is to do this. And no, the scripture doesn't require it, but I think it's good advice. Severally. So in several activity, the rule is, 
nothing contrary to, but directed. Directed, circle that word, you'll see it in here. Directed by Scripture. So you're directed by Scripture in your several activity. You are regulated by Scripture in your joint activity. If you have those two categories, and if you haven't seen it there and circled it and write it out, but that's crucial. You need to keep that in your head. Acting jointly, regulated. Acting severally, directed. Very simple formula. Now, real quickly, can you imagine how this then uh, uh, deals with the authority of Christ and Christian liberty, the discussion there? Well, for instance, prohibited sin, what is not by good and necessary inference published. What would be a joint? What would be an example? Prohibiting as sin, what is not by good and necessary inference prohibited in Scripture? Well, prohibited as sin. You're saying that is something we should be able to do or not? Okay, it's not. So what would you say would be a legitimate? Drunkenness. Drunkenness. This is a great example. Um, would you? What's the quote of the, we were talking about? It. I say shit again. It just keeps coming out of my mouth. And what does the scripture say? Does the scripture inhibit me from doing, prohibit me from saying shit? I don't think so, unless you can point by goodness or inference. But am I directed severally in the way that I use language? Sure. How would you? You give me your quote. Let, which, no, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth. Amen. Now, now there you go. That's the rule. The only rule that I can think of, and there's others that say it like that in Scripture, of course. But that's a directory. Now, I have to discern, is using the word shit right now wholesome? Now, my culture might have the knee-jerk reaction of, how could shit ever be wholesome? I keep saying it over and over, I know. <laughs> But why does that offend you? What if I'm saying it? On a farm. On a farm. Okay, well, true. There's a lot of uses for shit that might be just what it is, right? But my point is, there are times. But what if I'm using it precisely to challenge your culture so that you can be set free from culture? What if I'm using it, on the other hand, maybe precisely in order to jolt you? I mean, Paul took a word in Second Philippians that was one of the most hideous cultural words you could use. Our translators, writing into modern English, calls it dumb. It is the word. And the most horrible, if you look at a semantic and you go back and read your lexicons, it is a word that horrified the Greek culture. It was used in graffiti. It was used in graffiti. It was the stuff you'd see on a wall today. Now, he used it because he felt it would be a wholesome use of the word. Now, we could go to Paul. You could go, and again, I'm not trying. You know, if you really think that about me, you've lost it. If you think for one minute, and I'm sitting here in a juvenile sense, I hope that's not what I'm doing at least, trying to just get away with something. That's not the point. What I'm trying to do is really ask the question, really? We heard another example. Who was it over here that we were talking Um about somebody doing something. I forget what it was. Was it maybe you again? Um, what was it? It was a great example where... Oh, oh, we were talking... Again, I'm just picking on this word shit. Um, 
having a well. Here's here's I was having a conversation with someone about something that was really bad, and this person looked at me and and, and just in a, in a sense of deep empathy. I said, Preston, I'm really sorry. That's that's really some deep shit. Now you know I don't know how how what about you? But when that person said that, I, it was so it was warming to me. It was validating. It was like, wow. Why? Because you hear in our culture the word shit used often in that way. It's, a, it's just a semantic, people. And semantics, is there's no root word, word behind the word that is sinful. It's just how it's used in society. And words change all the time. All the time. Sick. Bomb. This. That. You know, and so, so we got to be. What I'm saying is, this issue of acting jointly versus severally, and all the way, and the way in which now we can't prohibit, but jointly we can say directed. You see, that's where I'm getting at. That's an example. What about prohibiting prescribed as necessary? What is by good and necessary inference prescribed? Now, if you, if it's necessary for you to do something, to submit to the government of the church, for instance, can the government of the church? Acting jointly prohibit you from buying something specifically. You'd say, well, it depends what it is. Can you think of anything? Probably good. Of course. Yeah. Sex. Buying sex. Yes. Good. What else? I can think of a lot of it. Maybe, maybe certain drugs. I don't know. Any kind of drug that's not illegal. All right. You're getting into it. Maybe illegal drugs, etc. But but then again, whoa. Illegal? What What is legal? How many drugs were illegal that are now legal in, in terms of medicinal? And so you got this issue with marijuana, for instance. Where does the church weigh in on that? Should we weigh into is medicinal marijuana legitimate or not? Can we by good scripture, not by anybody else, can we by scripture make a ruling on marijuana? We can say you should... We could speak a ruling as to our the way that we submit to the civil authorities of our state. We can talk about that. But even there, if you read the Puritans who were very bad, oh, they had a very high law of how far a church, or a very low law. How, in other words, there were all sorts of situations where, for the sake of Christian freedom, we would violate civil authority, where we would acknowledge that civil authority has no right to impinge upon my rights that Christ died for. And that was Owens. You read John Owens, man. He has a whole book on this. Heavy stuff where these guys are saying, whoa, we don't just blindly submit to the state, though. We believe in what's called, what, just uh, uh, passive resistance. And passive resistance is not, but but you've got to be careful. This isn't, I'm going to disobey the law of the land because I just don't like it. No, it's out of conscionable objection where we say the law of the land is, is prohibiting that which Christ allows in a manner that I can't do it. I mean, to give you an example, um, one of the most, most poignant is to give you an example of this. So someone's here, they become a Christian, they're the wife of a husband who's not and says, I don't want you to go to church on Sunday. You can do it in your own private devotions. What does the church say? On the one hand, we can lawfully say your husband is a lawful authority in your home instead of the home, etc. And we can work through that and working through that. Up until the point where your husband prohibits you or forces you to do anything contrary to what the church has jointly declared as a rule of faith and practice. And up until that point, I'm going to say, not any longer. You go to church. Put the burden on. If he wants to divorce you, that's going to be the way it goes. 
Now that's that's how this works, you see. Because we don't let any authority trump Christ. Mm. But now, that tends not to happen, actually. Um, so that's the first point. Joint several. Any questions? We have 15 minutes. I need to keep going. There's a lot here. You can work through it. da 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 all right. I get. By the way, I get. He. I get into the issue of worship. That's a very good example of where the regular principle acting jointly plays out because of that nature of worship and how it's. It, it is what it is. So you get a whole lot here on. Okay. Well, what then are? I try to give you an example of. Okay. What would the elements be? What would the forms be? And and you can kind of get a sense for that. And again, even if you were read this, you go. I think I disagree with that being a form. I, I'm fine with that. Let's let's duke it out together. Not now, I'm sorry. Just in two seconds. Um, yeah, I don't want to duke that out. But the point is, is that, that um, to me, my interest here is not to tell you that our session or that I or our denomination has a has a perfect, infallible. We don't believe that. I don't think I, the session, or our denomination or our creed, even for that matter, is infallible. Right? What I want is you to have the categories. I just want you to have the categories of oh, okay, church acting jointly has a different kind of, of relationship in terms of church power than a church acting jointly, severally. Preston may very well give me this advice, but that's not a by good and necessary inference required of you kind of advice. You see, and that's really important. Um, can, yeah, I need to move on, but you have something not about the worship issue? No, I, I, yeah. I think it's quick. You said before that obviously an individual can't act jointly. Right. But the, the example in here has Paul both speaking jointly yeah. and severally, and yeah, yeah. he is Paul by himself. Yes, he is. So how does Paul speak jointly? As a Great example. He's, a, he's an apostle given revelatory uh, powers, foundational powers. He is acting in a, in a way that, that is prescribed by Christ in that unique way to give us that. So post-apostle, post-apostle it's, more than one. Yeah, I mean, don't get me wrong. It's not that the elders or pastors or whoever is not acting authoritatively. I mean, they have the authority. And their advice is not just, it's, 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 it's advice, but it's advice that comes with the backing of, of, a, of Christ who says he should be giving you this advice. But yeah, it can be challenged. Well, anything can be challenged in that matter. He, um, he, was in, he was acting within um, concert of other, other apostles. Well, that's the other thing. When there was a controversy, remember we got Acts 15 and the court, and the and the, the Council of Acts, which judged between Paul and and uh, whoever Barnabas. So there was an issue there, even where he submitted itself that way. Number two, I got to get going here. Um, so we go all the way through here. Let's see, where was my number two? Um, okay, this direct this issue of um, where's my number two here? Fourteen. Fourteen. Does it start? Yeah, I'm sorry, I didn't get it big enough. The second one, of course, we've looked at. Uh, no, that's I'm sorry, that's within this whole. Uh, this is a, I did a lot on this joint several. Okay. I want to pick up where I left off here. Maybe I made a mistake here. Where's forms and elements is on Thank you. That's where I'm looking for forms and elements. 15, 11. That's what I'm looking for. Thank you. God, I went way too far. So, so actually, forms and elements is what I also did, and that's what I did the worship with. Now, we've talked about, it, about that a lot, right? Do we understand that? I think we really did do a pretty good job of that already. What would be an example today? Having the... Uh 
whatever you call that. The screen. If we want to. The screen. Have a screen or not. Yeah, good. We had a little. We had a, quite a little conversation about that at the beginning of the year. Do we, in the first service, put a screen up or not? Believe it or not, we had a pretty deliberate conversation about that, with pros and cons. And but it, it certainly didn't re- come to the level of the scripture prohibits it. What about a, what about the uh, the robe? Yeah, that's a form. What about? You could go on. I think you got it. We're going to have communion no matter what, but whether you come up to the front or Good, good. I like the distinction you just made. Coming forward or not. Oh, there's some others, you know, um, but we won't go into it. I want to get to the weak and the strong mostly. So now we come to three. Oh, no, spiritual. Um, this gets to your question here. Where's that one? Uh, pick up. 16. Thank you, 16. Oh, I see. Sometimes I didn't bold on it. See number 16, C, distinguishing spiritual power and temporal. You're going to like this, Chris. Um, One of the, you know, the distinction you're going to see here is between bestial and legitimate on the one hand. (laughs) That's a Kleinian phrase. I had to say it. Um, Bestial but legitimate. And uh, redemptive. Or So what better language would be, of course, remedial. One one uh, one of the ways to distinguish the spiritual and one is remedial, as pertaining to our on earth relationships. One is is redemptive, as ultimately derived from our in heaven relationship. And as you look through it, that's just. But as you work through this, you'll see um, the the one that, that I want to point you to, the, to that really gets at it. And then we can walk stop for a minute. Look over at page nineteen. Bannerman is really good on this, by the way. Look at that uh, that nice little summary of Calvin slash uh, uh, Knox slash Presbyterian polity or whatever by Thomas Peck. And and so what he notices is he goes through and says, okay, so what do we mean by spiritual? Don't think of spiritual as, like you said, invisible. The church is spiritual, and it's visible. Spiritual means uh, the, the mission of the church which pertains to our redemptive lives as related to the work of the Holy Spirit, etc. Uh, you know, the church temporal means as pertaining to our common grace. So another way is special grace, common grace. Common grace at its best, according to our tradition, is remedial. It can't build much of anything in terms of the kingdom of God. It can build a lot of beautiful and otherwise, but it can't build anything in terms of the kingdom of God. It has no power to usher in the great millennial utopian world. Now that really speaks to my way of thinking of expectations, doesn't it? But on the other hand, it is vitally important as, as, as a means of of remediating the evil and, 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 and reducing, or, or what's the word I'm looking for? Restraining is the word I'm looking for, evil, as well as uh, mining and, and developing wisdom and entrepreneurial activity as pertaining to what we describe as natural revelation. So if you think of these categories in relationship to God, the state is an ordinance of God, considered as the creator. But I want you to notice the language. An ordinance... Of God, the state is a moral duty of Christians to support. It was instituted by God, but it relates to God as Creator. 
a wisdom that is common to all people of all faiths and none. It means that if I were a Christian, if I decided to be, stop being your pastor and become the mayor, and if someone said, what is a Christian duty as a mayor? I would say, I will, rule, I will govern in a manner that makes no distinction between Christians and Muslims and atheists and whoever. I will rule as a mayor. I may be informed by my Christian values as to what I think is for the common good, but it's got to be the principle, does this serve everyone in a manner that enables them to flourish in our temporal life with God as a creator? As a pastor? Very different now. And so this first one, in relation to God, one relates to God as creator, the other relates to God as redeemer. In relation to our constitution, uh, the, the world has what we call temple creation or the book of a revela- common re- general revelation. That's all the macro sciences. That's all the macro sociologies. That's all the, and micro for that matter, micro. You know, you just go right through the disciplines that are taught over there at Yale. You know, polity and law and sociology and science and education and every one of them have access to a huge volume that is given to us by God called creation. Stuff that we can study systematically, etc., etc. And we don't think that Christians have a handle on that any more than a Muslim does. I can sit down at a table with a Muslim or anybody else and, and have every reason to believe that we can read the sources together and we can discern from those sources what is good and honorable for this world. Now, I can speak to the purpose of government from God's word, and I can do everything I can do to remind us that the purpose of government is to remedial, to be remedial and all that kind of stuff. But so, as the Constitution, ours is the word of God, and only the word of God. We do not have a special place. We don't have a special lens to read creation with, but we do have a special lens to read the word of God, the scriptures of, the, of redemptive history. So there's natural history and there's redemptive history. We are the 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 uh, the guild who reads redemptive history, and the whole world together under the governance of the state reads natural history. In relation to power, no, we just talked about that. The power of the church is strictly and only ministerial and declarative. There's those words again. You know what they mean. The power of the state is magisterial and imperative, which means they make laws and they can execute those laws with the sword. They can force them upon you. It's not the conscience. It's a much, in some ways, higher power from a temporal point of view, but it, in being having a higher power, it actually loses the power of conscience. Because to have temporal control over you is to create the conscionable resistance that enables you not to be morally influenced. And that was de Tocqueville. If you read or read a great synopsis of this, it's Alex David Tocqueville and his analysis of, of church and state and the manner in which that affected the heart. And these people are so much more religious precisely because the state doesn't control whether they can live in this house or not. I mean, the church doesn't. So now it opens up the, the heart to believe and to, to consider because my... my, my uh, my raising my children and giving them food is it predicated upon whether I agree with you or not? And you see how important that is. It's got to be a, a confessional. Christianity is not something you can force temporally. Just not. And wherever it's been tried, it's created all sorts of difficulties in terms of people coming to faith even. 
I really, I really, and sometimes uh, pity a guy, Jonathan Edwards, who preaches to a congregation where their relationship to the church is predicated upon their relationship to the uh, the state is and the temporal benefits of living in that covenant society that they had there is predicated upon the relationship to the church because that means they came to church. And man, they were just doing this. So, and, uh, yeah, yes, 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 I ain't going to date nothing that's not going to get me that house. And they couldn't talk, they couldn't reason. And so, boy, that's why you, and so don't ever read a Puritan sermon the same way you do now. That's why they had to do the hellfire and brimstone to wake these people up and say, whoa, I know you're here because you got to be here, but can you consider this other side? And there's a different venue there. I'm going to have to, relation to power, then relation to form. We believe in the church, the form of government is in given. That's why we, we go to the scripture to find out, is it Presbyterian, is it, is it Anglican, is it what? We have some different agreements on that, but we think it's given, and we're going to the apostles to find out what that is. Whereas in the state, we do not believe that there is an authorized form of government. We do not. By the way, what does that mean in terms of voting? You can vote Democratic all you want, or you can vote the American system all you want. Um, and that's fine. As a, as a citizen of America, as a private citizen acting severally, if you have a bias towards this versus this versus this system of government, that's all cool. But don't ask your church to, to, to take sides. John Stott was a socialist. You know? I don't know uh, who's a capitalist uh, or a, 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 you know, you, you, you know, you hear my point. Um, and even within this debate between it just gets under my craw honestly to hear the church pumping American system of, of politics as if it's sacred redemptive I'm not saying it's not right or wrong better or worse That's, you don't, listen to me I am not weighing in here As I have no interest to do that whatsoever it is so boring to me I don't even care sitting in the seat now I'll go home and I'll care when I got a vote next week. You see my point? I mean, as a pastor, I don't care. Unless you can show me. And the session shouldn't care. And shouldn't be using its influence to help you care. At least being careful. Now, hypothetically, this is important. Hypothetically, Stuart Robinson wrote a whole thing about this coming out of this system. Could I be right now the mayor of, of New Haven? Absolutely. <laughs> What's wrong with my mouth? Could I be? I hope I could. And hopefully I would know how to restrain myself. And I would know how to say what I need to say and not say. Maybe I could. I'm not saying I'd be a good one. I'm not saying you should vote for me. But the point is, hypothetically. But biblically, can I? Yes. But it would be to the degree that I thought we had a society that could distinguish between my actions as pastor and moderator of a session in my actions as a governor of the state. And I don't think we live in a, con- a category, a society that could possibly make that distinction. Why? Because that's a distinction that's been all but lost in every denomination and in every tradition of religion I know of right now, with very few exceptions. And so I don't think I could do it. I might have a few people here that would understand but I don't think the world could understand. And they would tie what I'm doing. And so that's really sad to me. Stuart Robinson, who I think wrote this, uh, the historians, that 
there's a big debate. I actually entered into it in my, in my book, but I, I'm not sure that this isn't Robinson language. But Robinson was a mayor, basically, in Maryland as a pastor. And, and he could say these things, you see. So that's the key, uh, the power of the church and its aim is very different than the power of the state in the same. Did you want to ask a question about that since I put you on hold a little earlier? Is that helpful? Does that kind of get it what you were looking for? Um, finally, the, the weak and the poor. Can I ask your indulgence to give me five minutes? I'll stop right now if you want. All those who approve five minutes, raise your hand. I won't do it. Somebody else can close. All those who don't, raise your hand. Who won? I think I speak for all of us when I say we'd love to be here for a few more hours. I know. I didn't ask that. I asked, do you give me five more minutes? Okay. Did I get it? I want to be true to my word. I said we're going to stop at 1230. Go, go, go. (laughs) Weak and strong is really, really huge. Um, did you get, did you, how many read the book? I, I kind of hope that you've read it. If you haven't, you ought to read it. But what's the typical way of interpreting Romans 14, somebody? You know, that language, do, do nothing that would cause a brother to stumble. What does that mean i got to do? Nothing conform to their behavior. Do what? Uh, yeah, say it one more time. I said you got to be safe. Like you got to not do the things that some people might think are wrong. Yeah. All right, what were you going to say? Conform to their behavior and their weakness. Or yeah. So if someone else has a... Con- let's, let's put it in a little more power line. If someone else has a cons- conscionable position on X, then, then for me to do X, so the war goes, would be to submit myself to his conscience or her conscience as not to cause them to stumble, not to do something that would somehow encourage them or force them or whatever to do what they say is wrong. Now, hold on with me. There's not, there are certainly some cases where I would want to abstain in love from that which another person is struggling with, and it's a legitimate struggle. Okay, So if, if I'm going out with an alcoholic, let's say, and someone who's trying to, in the first, you know, early years or whatever, of trying to, to escape the, the ravages of alcoholism in love, should I... Hey, come on, have a beer with me. You know, I hope not. Um, but here's the issue. The irony, if you've read, and if you understand the scripture and read it, just pretty slowly but simply, is that that's the opposite. That's exactly what the, some people were doing wrong. Is that they were asking some who had a biblical view of foods offered to idols, which was what? Idols are a myth. The the food is not messed up by it. Eat it if you're hungry. (laughs) For those who had a more mature view, a strong view, for them, eating would be fine. But there were some who had still not been able to eat in good faith. As in, that's not where they were for whatever reason. And the problem was that those who were not eating, therefore do not force this person to eat and eat what is not in their faith to eat, unless the scripture commands it. Now here we go back to the regular principle. They were jointly, is it prohibited, is the scripture prohibit eating foods offered to idols? But does it force you to eat foods offered to idols. Nope. Therefore, 
Paul said, let each one do what is according to his faith. If you can eat it, eat it. If you cannot eat it, don't eat it. If you cannot eat it, don't eat it. This isn't just about this alcoholic story I told you. This is not the story of, you know, again, if you can't do it without sinning, don't eat it. This is even deeper than that. This is the issue of authority. The church is trying to discern whether this is something that it needs to enact discipline on or not. Should the church discipline those who eat meats? Should this church discipline those who don't eat meats? Answer, no, no. Now, that's the way, that's Romans 14, that's this issue here of distinguishing between what I call the weak and the strong, or what I call wickedness and righteousness. It's one thing to say, this is wicked. This is, that's sin. I.e., you can't do that, or you have to do that. It can be both ways. Sins of you know, omission, sins of commission. It's another thing to say, um, this, this in certain situations might be sinful for you. But in this situation, it may not be. So let the scriptures direct you. And what was the direction of Christ? Paul. It's beautiful. This is a beautiful situational polity. It's love. And it's faith. If you can do this in faith, it's a positive thing here. It's not, can I get away with it? It's, if you can do this in faith, you believe this is a, a good execution of what you believe in your faith as directed by the scripture back to this shit thing you know if right today I felt that choosing that word over and over and over again was something that that was directed by that principle of edification so that I chose it to be a good way to love you and a good way to serve you and helping you work through this issue of church power then I chose to do it you can certainly disagree whether that was wise or not. Again, this is so menial to me. I hope that we're not, I'm using it for that reason in some level. But I'm sure it affects some of you. And, and the point is, that's fine. That's a good do. But at least I want you to have the categories. I forced the categories on you. And you need to do it in faith if you can do it at all. You need to do it in love. Did I do it in love? God is my ultimate source here, isn't it? Was it in love or was it not? I don't know. What else could have I chosen to make the point? Maybe there was something else. thought this was pretty benign. But the point is, is but, but that's okay. That's what Paul's saying. That's the point of Romans 14 and 1 Corinthians 8. Questions. What are, can you imagine the amount of issues there are? By the, by, there are so many issues in the church. I can't even name, number them. But just throw them out quickly. What would they be? Examples. Um. Maybe how people dress when they come to worship. Uh, worship dress, okay? But I guess too. Okay, can we just before you do it? I want to just throw them out. I want to hear hear what you you guys think are the issue. <laughs> and I'll come back. Educating your children. Educating your children. Drink or not drink. Drink or not drink. Women covering their heads. Really? In this church, there's some people who don't think they should cover their heads? That's cool. Christianity. Covering the heads. Hip-hop dancing. Hip-hop dancing? This is How good. This helped me. Do what? How wealthy one should be. How wealthy one should be. Good. You know, I'm glad you got some... Now you're getting, you're getting serious here. Yeah, class issues. And wealth. Um, this was a big issue yesterday, the other day in our conversation with collaboratives. You know, what, what is happening, you know, I won't go into it, but, yeah, where you live. 
and, and how that affects your relationship to the broader body of Christ. Where you spend your money. Now, the question is, now, I'm going to say this because I think I have to at this point because we're all going, ouch! Um, it's one thing to be struggling with sin. And we should sin. And, and so there is a lot of unlovingness in my life in the way I spend my money when it comes to loving others as, as, as you know, consider others as more important than yourself. Who, who really, the rubber meets the road when it comes to money? And it's something I need prayer on. It's something I really need prayer on. It struggles. But the category is still do everything in love. Can you buy this and do this in faith? One of the big issues, the reason I love what you said is because the issue to me is, and, and the issue of finances and, and, and class, it's never, don't even get caught in it, it's never the issue of how you spend your expendable income. That's, that's nothing. The issue is the decisions you make about lifestyles that controls your expendable income. So you can say, well, I can't do this because I don't have the money. That's not the question. But see, that's why I love the way you asked that question. I don't know if you meant it that way, but that was like an ouch of big time. Because you put your finger right on it. It's, it's our lifestyle. It's, it's, how, it's, the, it's how we manage wealth and the lifestyle decisions we make about where we live, what we do, etc. that is determining what you can do with your resources. And the decisions made before you ever hear a campaign for X amount of money. You've already made the decision. And so that's really crucial. But again, is is huge. I mean, that to me rises to the level of what was probably then food offered to idols. I mean, you're getting to one of those don't go there issues. And still, as a church, we have to be careful. We can say, look, do all things with faith. Or, or, did you do this in faith? Did you have a principle directing you to do this and the principle of love governing that, that directory? What were those decisions like? Why did you make them, etc.? And then, if later you're convicted that you didn't, let's don't do what the Pharisees did. What the Pharisees did is when they found themselves convicted by the law of God, they just reduced the law. They just said, well, the law really doesn't mean this. I mean, you, you know, I was putting into Corbin what was really, you know, for God. I, that's, you know, it's for the family, man. That's what I'm doing. No, don't do that. Come on, if we're gospel center, we don't have to do that anymore. I can just come out and say what I said a minute ago. Man, I'm just selfish. Please pray for me. I'm selfish. By God's grace, I'm going to heaven. By God's grace, he's given me small little improvements, maybe sometimes kind of I'm still wrestling with it. But we can be a body that just can say out front, look, guys, I'm not going to sit here and rationalize. That's the part that I think we want to avoid. Don't rationalize. Just say, you know, I'm not loving like I need to be. But I'm trying to be. Help me. Give me. I need God's power to free me from a lot of stuff. But that's a great example. But a church can't come in and say, you can't live uh, at Roger Road. You can't buy that car. You can't go on that trip. You just can't. They can just raise the questions. Are you doing it in faith? That's exactly what Romans 14 did. And, and are you considering the needs of the other? That's the issue of stumbling. It's not just stumbling in that particular sense. Are you doing something that in any manner puts a barrier or a boundary to this person receiving the love of Christ through you and through the church? Okay, I'm going to stop there, but if you have a question, you can. Is that the church directly asking you 
is that the place of the, the body to be like, are you doing this, Preston? Doing what? Are you considering the other? I mean, I, oh, certainly we can. I just did. I mean, you can proclaim the Word of God. That's what happens every sermon, I hope, is we can challenge us to whatever ethical, you know, whatever moral issues we should, but you've got to distinguish between joint several, but here weak and strong. I'm a, I'm a weak pastor, guys. I'm a weak pastor. I'm too materialistic. I'm telling you that right now. And I'm making progress. I think. I don't know. No, we're, we're working on it. But uh, and, and we do, and we, we get we, we really do work on it. But we're but we still got a lot of work to do. My point is, you see my point. But as a congregation, should we come at you and ask you, well, you know, you should say you should proclaim exactly by good and necessary inference. Asking ourselves that, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what we're doing right now, and that's what I do in a sermon. But but the point is, is we can't go and say to you, I can't come and you say, are you putting, are you loving others is more important than yourself? Well, I mean, no. That's why I got the gospel. The answer is no. <laughs> Not, I mean, all over the place, no. But I'm, I'm asking God. But what you can't think about those those five vows. We, we go there. Do you believe you're a sinner? I.e., do you do you love people as yourself? No. I confess I'm a horrible sinner. Do you believe in the work in, in, in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins? Yes, I do. I cannot believe in my works. They're not enough. Third, don't miss that third one. Do you, to the best of your ability, seek, you know, and it goes on to, uh, uh, what's the language there? I'm just blanking here from it. No, no, this is to do the best, enable to follow the, you know, follow Christ. Uh, yeah, I'm, I, I do want to do that, but I don't want to, and that's the struggle. I'm struggling to want to do it. Fundamentally, I am. I'm praying for it. I'm going and I'm attending the means of grace that the gospel has given to me to help me with that word and sacrament and fellowship and accountability. But I am struggling with it. And that's what I want to hear in some ways from a justification point of view. Well, that's what Christians do. They struggle with it until this life, until the end, right? Paul, remember? The very things I want to do, I don't do. Da, 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 da. All right. Father, thank you for this wonderful community and for the love that brought them here. Uh, and we thank you for this noble ambition to be your servants. And we pray, Father, that you will take uh, the readings and the, and the discussions and you will bind it to their hearts where it needs to be bound and our, my heart. And, um, and we pray, Lord, that ultimately we would not forget what this is about, the exclusive lordship of Jesus Christ as king and head of his church and the graciousness of that exclusivity and setting us free from the commandments of men, and so far as our faith and practice is concerned. Help us, we pray, to be faithful to that. In Christ's name, amen. So your next assignment is there. Go for it. Um, we'll see you in a month. Uh, one thing I would say, if you have the opportunity for the next week, do you see that word, uh, T.F. Torrance, Royal Priesthood? Since you no longer have to read Edmund Clowney, may I encourage you to read T.F. Torrance, Royal Priesthood, Chapter 2, The Function of the Body of Christ. I think you'll be edified. God bless.